Okay, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And uh, Mark's been a project that I've been wanting to work on for quite a while now. And uh, Lord willing, over the next few services and between, I'm going to try and record the entire Gospel of Mark. I've always thought that Matthew was the first to write down his accounts of his time with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm now wondering if Mark was the first to do so. Mark wasn't an apostle. Mark was a friend, an associate, a colleague of the Apostle Peter. So Peter would have dictated his accounts, his memory during his time with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mark wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Mark was a nephew of Barnabas. And Barnabas, we know, was one of the 70. Mark was very much an almost eyewitness to the Lord's ministry. In fact, we think from the last chapters of Mark that he was the man who fled naked or almost naked when they came to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. So this account is going to be the nearest you'll ever get to what Peter thought of his time with the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark is also called John Mark from the book of Acts. He's a nephew of Barnabas. So we're in good company when we look at the Gospel of Mark. And it could just be that Mark was the first to write down his account, his uh, understanding of the Lord's ministry. But nevertheless, Peter is going to dictate his account, his memory of the Lord's ministry. And the Holy Ghost is going to inspire Mark to do so. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Mark is very similar to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Mark is very similar to the first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And I believe that Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2 mirrors Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 16. And I'll explain that as we go through the next few studies. But Mark thinks nothing of calling Jesus Christ the Son of God. And yet, if you were to go to the Middle East today, if you were to speak to a Muslim, they would tell you that to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God would put a curse on you. But my Bible tells me that unless you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you are already accursed. And this term, the beginning of the gospel, simply means the beginning of the Lord's ministry. And he goes on to say, as it is written in the prophets, plural, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face which shall prepare thy way before thee. Mark is going to quote the Old Testament on many occasions, and we know this is in reference to John the Baptist's ministry, and John the Baptist was a cousin of the Lord, and I'll get more to that in a moment. But John's ministry was to prepare the people of Israel for the Lord's arrival. Look at verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Lord, here is in reference to Jehovah, Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai. In reference to deity, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, who comes in the power and spirit of Elijah, not in reference to reincarnation, but simply in reference to the same anointing that Elijah experienced. And he's in the wilderness, literally, which is also a metaphor for the world system. And he's preparing the people for the Lord's arrival. John the Baptist is a forerunner to the Messiah. Verse 4. John did baptise in the wilderness and preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
John's baptism was to put you into water. John's baptism was to prepare the people of Israel for the coming Messiah. Today, we believe, we are saved, and then we are baptised. But for this dispensation, John's ministry was to put people, repentant Jewish people, I should say, into physical water in preparation for the coming Messiah. Look at verse 5. And they went out unto him, all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptised of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. John was a prophet, not a priest, and these people are confessing their sins to God before they are baptised by John in the water. Now today, like I say, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive an imputed righteousness. We know the moment we believe on him, all of our past, present and future sins have been washed away by his precious blood. But these people have arrived from Judea, Jerusalem and Jordan, all Jews at this point in time as well, no Gentiles present. And they are baptised by John in the river Jordan. They confess their sins to God before John baptises them into water. That won't save anybody. That wouldn't have saved this group of people. They too needed to be baptised by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's discussed in Acts chapter 19. Look at verse 6. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes are not worthy to stoop down and unloose. He's making it very clear he's not even worthy to untie the laces of the Lord Jesus Christ, like Muhammad. Muhammad doesn't have the right, he doesn't come anywhere near the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist, like I say, was a distant cousin of the Lord. John's mother, Elizabeth, was Mary's first cousin, Mary of course being the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist would have been a second cousin to Mary, so John the Baptist would be a distant cousin to the Lord Jesus Christ. And although these two are related, John and Jesus, he says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose the latchet of his shoes. That's great humility. Look at verse 8. I indeed have baptised you with water, but he shall baptise you with the Holy Ghost. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that there is one spirit that baptises us all into the body of Christ. And that happens a moment we believe on him. That's also found in Ephesians chapter 4. So John's baptism by total immersion puts a repentant Jew and on some occasions Gentiles too into physical water in anticipation of the coming Messiah who's going to put you into the body of Christ via the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised of John in Jordan. This is fascinating. And I ask myself, why was Jesus Christ baptised by his cousin, by anyone for that matter? He didn't need to be baptised. His anointing came via heaven, but he came to be baptised first of all to set an example to all of us. And he came also to be baptised so that the people of Israel, the children of Israel, would see that he was the chosen Messiah. Look at verse 10. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Heavens opened in ten, and the heavens opened to proclaim the Lord's pleasure in his Son, and the heavens never closed after that. But look at verse 10 one more time. And straightway, immediately coming up out of the water, total immersion, 
he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him as the Holy Ghost. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost are found in two verses. And this was down to John's love for the Lord, through the Lord's foreknowledge. John was chosen to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. In fact, John the Baptist is one of the first people to recognise Jesus Christ's deity. Look at verse 12. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. The Holy Ghost takes Jesus Christ into the wilderness. And I heard somebody a while ago saying that the devil took Jesus Christ into the wilderness. No, that's not correct. The Holy Spirit driveth him, drove him, he carried him, he took him, Jesus Christ, into the wilderness. You couldn't do anything to Jesus Christ without heaven say so. Jesus Christ was on a very strict divine timetable. And although Jesus Christ is always God and has always been God and will always be God, at a time of his choosing, he decided to become the Son of Man, which put him in submission to God the Father. Look at verse 13. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Verse 13 is very important in witchcraft, in Satanism. 13 is very synonymous. And Satan is found the first time here in the Gospel of Mark in verse 13. It's always interesting when these things occur in Scripture. But Satan is now going to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 literal days. And Jesus Christ is going to go without food and water for 40 days. Like you found back in the Old Testament with Elijah and with Moses. And it says here, And he was with the wild beasts, in reference to Jesus, and the angels ministered unto him. We know from the Gospel of Matthew how the Lord Jesus Christ was born in a manger, a stable. Jesus Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ is Lord of the animal kingdom. He's Lord of mankind, hence why he's called the Son of Man. And he's also Lord of the angels. He's called the Angel of the Lord. So angels are ministering unto him along with wild beasts, or he's with the wild beasts. But Satan ultimately is going to tempt him. And this is yet another mystery in scripture, a mystery that I don't really understand. We know from the book of Hebrews how he learned obedience. And we know from the word of God how he is able to help us to the uttermost. He knows what we go through as human beings. So that's really, I guess, the only reason I can understand why the Lord Jesus Christ put himself through this. It's wanting to come to earth and die for the sins of the world. Because we know when we sin against God, only God himself can forgive us. But to be baptised in water, if it wasn't to set an example to us, would make little sense to me. And to be tempted with the devil, if it wasn't to help us, would also make little difference to me. I wouldn't understand it. But there you are, first, verse 13, like I say, pictures the arrival of Satan. And he's a literal being. And I'll say this also, until you are born again, you are a child of the devil. You might give money to charity. You might be a very decent person in your community you may have two or three jobs you may support your family you may be mr wonderful or mrs wonderful but unless you are born again you are a child of the devil not in a physical sense but in a spiritual sense and satan is your father hence why you must be born again look at verse 14 now after that john was put in prison jesus came into galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of god and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god is at hand repent ye and believe the gospel. There's a first call to repentance. And repentance simply means a change of mind. A change of direction. And by this point in the Lord's ministry. John is now being put in prison. 
and he is awaiting martyrdom. John being the first martyr in the New Testament. But Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, as far as I'm concerned, are the same thing, but, but, but they have different aspects to it. For example, the kingdom of heaven has the sign gifts, the Jewish apostolic sign gifts, which Jesus Christ gives to his 12 apostles. But for us living today, we are in the spiritual kingdom of heaven. We're in the spiritual kingdom of God. We are in anticipation for the Jewish Messiah to come back to rule and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. So when he says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye, being all of you, and believe the gospel, you've got to be careful with that. This gospel that Jesus Christ was preaching is slightly different to the gospel that Paul preached. Paul was given the mystery gospel. We know that had the Jews received Jesus Christ, the church age would never have been commenced. Jesus Christ would have come back after the crucifixion and he could have initiated his literal Davidic kingdom, a thousand year rule and reign on the earth. There would have been no church age, but because the Jews rejected him, the church age was born and the gospel was given to Paul. So you can harmonize these verses with the Pauline epistles. You can say repentance is a change of mind, which it is. You can say to somebody to believe the gospel, which they must. But to then say the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, literally, is problematic because the kingdom of God needs a king and the king is Jesus Christ. So you've got to watch these verses, scripture with scripture, otherwise you end up teaching lordship salvation. You end up teaching the gospels as doctrine for the church, which is problematic. I'll say this very quickly, that 90% of the gospel material, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, is law. 90% of the material found in the four gospels is given to the Jews under the law. That's why we as Bible believers in the church age go to the epistles to get our meat, to get our food. Verse 16. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Professional fishermen, lower middle class fishermen, very well-to-do fishermen, and Simon and Andrew are the first brothers that come to the Lord's attention. And it may be that Peter didn't want to write this gospel, perhaps because he didn't feel worthy. Perhaps he didn't feel capable of writing his own gospel. He wrote First Peter and Second Peter. But like I say, Simon Peter dictated the gospel to his friend, associate and colleague, John Mark, who wrote it down for us. And here the Lord has found Simon and Andrew casting a net into the sea. And he's going to call these two groups of brethren to be his apostles. But if you go back to John's Gospel, John chapter 1, we know that Andrew saw Jesus Christ first of all, and Andrew approached his brother Peter to tell him of the Lord's ministry. So the four Gospels are not necessarily in the same chronological order. You must be careful of that. Look at 17. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men, soul winners. From catching fish to now catching men. Soul winners, what a great commission. 18. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. You'll find Matthew and Mark and Luke as well very much highlighting the, the fast pace of the Lord's ministry. But Mark uses the word straightway, immediately, with Annan. He uses a sense of urgency throughout his gospel. And it says here one more time, And straightway, immediately, they forsook their nets and followed him. Like I say, they saw the Lord pre this point of time. Andrew was an associate of John the Baptist, and maybe Peter too. They would have heard of the Lord's ministry, they would have seen his miracles. It's not like they just woke up one morning and they 
heard a man say, come after me, follow me, and they dropped everything and followed him. No, I believe this was over a period of time. Much like soul winning. A person doesn't get saved straight away. A person hears the gospel and after a while eventually forsakes everything and follows the Lamb of God whithersoever he goeth. Look at 19. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who also in the ship men in the nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants, and went after them. Second group of brethren, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And it says here they left their father and the hired servants and went after him. These two were also well-to-do, professional, lower middle-class fishermen, and they had hired servants, and they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And I also believe that John and James, the sons of Zebedee, were cousins of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my understanding that Salome was a sister of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. So by this stage, you've got two groups of brothers that have forsaken everything, and are now following the Lord Jesus Christ into the ministry. But go back to John's Gospel, if you get a chance, read it, and you'll see that these brethren already knew of the Lord Jesus Christ pre this point in time. But they're going to forsake everything and follow him. And yet, if you go to John chapter 21, after the resurrection, it says that Peter and six other apostles went fishing. So they haven't forsaken their businesses per se, they still have their businesses, but this is in reference to a surrender to follow the Lamb of God, like I say, whithersoever he goeth. Look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. This man's on a mission. He's called two groups of brothers to follow him, to serve him, and he's gone straight from Galilee into a synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus Christ was a Jew of the Jews. So don't be surprised if you find him going into many synagogues throughout his ministry. He was regularly in the temple. But he goes into a synagogue, and no doubt this would have been on the Sabbath. And look at verse 22. And they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority, and not as a scribes. He practiced what he preached. He was a living word of God. And people say, you know, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. And he was very much a personification of fulfilling the word of God, living the word of God, because he was the word of God. And no doubt they were stunned, they were astonished at his doctrine, because he had authority. His words would have ricocheted through anybody that came into contact with him. Look at verse 23. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What are we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. An unclean spirit in a man in a synagogue. Let me say this please, that Satan is very interested in organised religion. This was a synagogue in Capernaum. This was a synagogue that Jesus Christ knew well. This was a synagogue that Peter knew very well. And I'll come to that shortly. And this man was probably a regular attendee of this synagogue. And it says here, Let us plural alone, leave us alone. What have we, plural, to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? Unclean spirits are under the authority of Satan. And I showed you from chapter 1, verse 13, how Satan had the authority to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. And here these unclean spirits point back, they report back, they serve their master, Lucifer, Satan. 
but they know who Jesus Christ is. They call him the Holy One of God. And yet the Catholic Church call Mary the Holy One. That's a blasphemy. But it says here, what have we to do with thee? Or have you come to destroy us before the time? Now they know that Jesus Christ is going to destroy them one day. They know that one day he's going to judge the world and they're going to, he's going to judge the spiritual kingdom. They know that. But they don't seem to understand the timing precisely, which suggests to me that they are limited in understanding of how the Lord's timetable works, which wouldn't be of any surprise to us, of course, because they are only spirits. Only God knows everything. But it says here, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? Not yet he hadn't. I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Fascinating scripture, I know you, leave us alone, we know who you are. Look at verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. Jesus rebuked him, singular. But I'm really fascinated with the fact that this man is in a synagogue. This man is a religious character. He's probably well known in his, in his community. And yet he's filled with an unclean spirit. But not just one spirit, many spirits. And this dialogue continues on between Jesus Christ and probably the main spirit in this man. Look at 26. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. Spirits speak with a loud voice. If you come across somebody who's intoxicated... They speak with a loud voice, and sometimes there's an unclean spirit behind somebody who has been intoxicated. But this unclean spirit has now torn him. He's ripped his clothes to some extent to perhaps expose him as being naked, which you find later on uh, in the Gospel of Mark in reference to somebody else. And nakedness is also a picture of demon possession, or devil possession, as the King James would call it. And he cries with a loud voice and came out of him. Just picture this for a minute. This is a synagogue, like I say, and I can't underscore this enough because it's important how Satan and his minions have an interest in organised religion. And this unclean spirit has been in this man for probably many years. And the rabbis, week in, week out, would have preached some message to this group of Jews, and yet none of them could help this poor man. In fact, we were told just a few days ago of somebody that we used to know who died recently. This person was a Catholic. And I said to Patrick at the time, I said, uh, isn't it tragic that this person who we've known for many years was a Catholic all their life, and yet this person had a drink problem and a smoking problem. And this person's church, the Church of Rome, was unable to help that person. And as far as we know, that person died unsaved. And this poor, this poor man in the synagogue had been irregularly a participant of Judaism, and the rabbis couldn't help him. It took the... Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk in and take personal command of this unclean spirit. Look at verse 27. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. He's called the Son of Man, the Son of God. He's called the Everlasting Father. You'll see in the later or the latter accounts of Mark, how he calms the waves, how he rebukes other unclean spirits, how he walks on water, how he gives sight to the blind, how he cured everyone and anything. If you go to the Quran, you look at the man, Muhammad, or anybody from antiquity, anybody from the ancient world, they don't come anywhere near this man called Jesus Christ. And I'll say this also, we are currently in 2015. 2015 years ago, a man was born a man who transformed the world. If you go to the Middle East, even if you go to North Korea, 
a secular, agnostic, atheist, Darwin nation. It's 2015 there as well. Everything points back to this man. So is any wonder, is any surprise, they were stunned, saying, what new doctrine is this? What authority does this man have? He even commands the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Look at 28. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. You just imagine it. His fame spread like wildfire. If you met Jesus Christ, you're never the same again. You could go from knowing of him, but once you had met him in the physical flesh, you knew him physically. And that's what being born again is, being born from above, being regenerated, going of a position of knowing of him to knowing him personally, to being received by God the Father, by being born from above, by being regenerated. Look at verse 29, please. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. I believe that Simon's house was next door to the synagogue. I believe that Peter was a faithful Jew and he built his house next door to the synagogue, or the synagogue perhaps built their house next door to Peter's house. More likely, Peter's house was built next door to the synagogue, or he wanted a house near to the synagogue where he could worship. And it's interesting because it says that Jesus went in to the house with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And that word forthwith, 29, means straight away, immediately. There's a drive here once again. They depart from the synagogue, and they enter into the house of Simon and Andrew. This must have been a large house. Not only did Peter live there with his brother, not only did Peter live there with his wife and children, but Jesus Christ is also going to be staying there for a while. Look at verse 30. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and Annan, they tell him of her. Directly they tell Jesus Christ that Simon's mother-in-law is sick. She's suffering with a fever. And I believe that this fever is linked to the unclean spirit that had just been cast out from the synagogue next door to where Simon lives. And we know from Luke's account of this soon-to-be miracle that Jesus Christ rebuked the fever. Look at 31. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her as she ministered unto them. So this spirit has left the synagogue which starts in verses 23, and by the time you get to verse 31, it has afflicted Peter's mother-in-law. She was obviously a weak person. She was weak enough to be infested by this fever, this unclean spirit of some kind. But don't worry, Jesus Christ was on hand to heal her, to cure her, and it says immediately the fever left her. No come back next week and do it again. No continual praying over her, which you see so many so-called healers do today. Immediately, straight away, the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. She took the position of a servant, and the Lord Jesus Christ blessed her abundantly. I'm going to stop there for today, verse 31, and that will conclude my unscripted look at the Gospel of Mark. A very quick breakdown of the Gospel of Mark, and Lord willing, I'm going to do these in 30-minute segments over next several sessions if I may and uh, dig deep into the word of God as we go through it but you can see very clearly how this is a fast moving gospel and uh, thank you for starting with me and next time we will continue on from verse 32 Mark chapter 1 verse 32 so during the last broadcast we ended off in verse 31 
from Mark chapter 1 and I showed you how the Lord Jesus Christ stepped in and healed Peter's mother-in-law of an unclean spirit. This unclean spirit, I believe, came from the synagogue which was next door to Peter's house. Peter was a faithful Jew, but for some reason his mother-in-law was susceptible. She was prone to being attacked, possessed perhaps, by an unclean spirit. And I showed you also from last time how a man was found in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. At least one unclean spirit. And it took the Lord God of the Bible in the person of Jesus Christ to step in to the synagogue and deal with the unclean spirit head on. But let's continue on if we may from verse 32. Mark chapter 1 verse 32. And at even when the sun did set they brought unto him all that were diseased and then that were possessed with devils. Devils plural. Satan is called the devil. Lucifer. He's also known as Baal. Baphomet. And the prince of the flies. Beelzebub. But these devils plural. Work under the authority of the devil. Being Satan of course. And like I said last time. Until you are born again. You are a child of the devil. You are a spiritual child of the devil. Hence why you must be born again. But this term here at even. Normally means late afternoon, early evening. When the sun did set. They brought unto him all that were diseased. And them that were possessed with devils. People were possessed with unclean spirits. And they knew that Jesus Christ could heal them. Look at 33. And all the city were gathered together at the door. What door is this? Peter's door. Peter's house must have been large enough for him to live there, for his wife to live there, for his mother-in-law to live there, for his own children to live there, for his brother Andrew to live there, and for Lord Jesus Christ to live there as well. And all the city has gathered together at Peter's door in anticipation of the Lord Jesus Christ's ability to heal them. 34. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. Look at 32. All that were possessed came to him. 34. And he healed many of diverse diseases and those that were sick and suffered. So all and many are used interchangeably. And also from 34. He wouldn't allow the devils to speak. Why? Because they knew him. And he hadn't come to earth to receive some kind of recognition from the unclean spirits. He came to die for the sins of the world. Look at verse 35, please. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. The Lord Jesus Christ was a man of great prayer. And my motto, my plan, my desire, my New Year's resolution, if you will, for 2015 is to quadruple my prayer. This man would pray early in the morning. He would pray all through the night. And we know from Luke chapter 6, he prayed all night before he chose his 12 apostles. 36. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. Simon and his brother and no doubt James and John. They followed him from their house because Jesus Christ left the same house early in the morning to go and pray. Verse 37. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. In reference to verse 28, 
His fame has spread abroad. People are coming all over Israel to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great scripture. All men seek for thee. But we know that mankind, for the most part, loves darkness rather than light. Why? Because the deeds were evil. Mankind, for the most part, won't come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mankind could come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but mankind, for the most part, won't come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 38. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. He was a man with a mission. He was on God's timetable. And he said, I can't stay here very long. I've got to go and preach somewhere else. And I'll say this. I don't believe in Calvinism. I don't believe in unconditional election or irresistible grace or limited atonement. I don't see anywhere in scripture where the Lord limited his preaching mandate. If he came just for the elect, why waste three and a half years crisscrossing Israel, preaching to thousands upon thousands of people if they had no chance of ever being saved? 39. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. Again, devils are interested in organised religion. And churches around the world, I believe, are indwelt with many devil-possessed people. But look at verse 40, please. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. A leper begs him, he kneels down to him, and he says, If you will, you can make me clean. This is a great picture of submission. This man went down on his knees in anticipation of a healing. And I'll say this, the Lord Jesus Christ very rarely healed two people the same way. 41. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, and saith unto him, I will, be thou clean. He touched him on other occasions. He simply spoke a word, and he says, I will, be thou clean. 42. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. No comeback tomorrow, no comeback next week, no comeback next month. He was immediately cleansed of his leprosy. But he got down on his knees in anticipation of a healing. And the same is true of salvation. Get down on your knees in order to be saved. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. 43. And he straightly charged him, and forthwith sent him away, and saith unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way. Show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Why? Because he's a lord of the temple. He's come to fulfill the Jewish law. And by healing this man, and by allowing this man to go to the temple via the priest, is an indirect testimony against organised religion. John the Baptist was not a part of organised religion. John the Baptist was a distant cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody from the hierarchy, nobody from organised religion laid hands on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ chose 12 ordinary men to be his apostles. But look at verse 45, please. But he went out 
and began to publish it much, and to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places. And they came to him from every quarter. He says, don't broadcast what I've done for you. Just go to the temple and tell the priest what has occurred and offer a gift which Moses has commanded. But this man was filled with joy, happiness and excitement. And he couldn't contain himself. So as a result, Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without outside in desert places. And they came to him from every quarter. So once again, men on this occasion, verse 37, going into verse 45, are seeking him. Not necessarily for salvation, you understand, but for healings, for food. And he says to them, labour not for the meat which perisheth, but for everlasting life. So there you are, Mark chapter 1 has now been completed. An unscripted look at this wonderful gospel. All unscripted, like I say, and uh, Lord willing, next time I will start looking at Mark chapter 2. But for now, may the Lord bless you all, and Maranatha. Mark chapter 2. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. He's gone back to Capernaum, but more specifically, he's gone back to the house of Peter. Capernaum was a Lord's headquarters for most of his time here on the earth. Verse 2. And straightway... Many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached a word unto them. He's now preaching the gospel on the doorstep of Peter's house. Just imagine it for a moment, if you will. The scribes and the Pharisees would have been incredulous. Who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? Who does he think he is? He's had no rabbinical training. He's not from a well-to-do family. He doesn't speak languages. He's not one of us. And yet crowds are following him all over Israel. Look at verse 3. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. To be a cripple in the first century was not uncommon. But I'll say this. If you were sick in the first century and you came into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, you were always, without exception, healed. If you were to die in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, he would make you alive just by a word. In fact, you couldn't die in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ without his permission. And you couldn't go to heaven once you had died until Jesus Christ died on the cross. Pre the Lord's arrival on the earth, if you were to die, if you were a righteous man or woman, you would go into the ground, Luke 16, known as Abraham's bosom, and you would wait there for the Messiah to go down and collect you, and take you back to glory. Everything points back to the Son of God. You can't do anything without the Son of God. But these people have brought this individual, sick of the palsy, who was born of four, to the door, to the house of Peter, in anticipation of being healed. Look at verse 4. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, then cover the roof where he was, and when they have broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. They have now removed Peter's roof to lower this man down through the roof to reach the Lord Jesus Christ. A very dangerous and reckless thing to do. And yet, I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was supernaturally protecting this cripple 
as he was lowered down through the roof by his three brethren. Otherwise, he could have fallen to his death and people would have said, isn't it typical this man who calls himself the son of God couldn't protect a cripple from falling to his death? So the Lord Jesus Christ, as always, is behind everything. And by his supernatural power, he protects this sick individual, a cripple, like I say, as they lower him through the roof of Peter. And you wonder what Peter's wife would have made of this. Peter was a family man. Peter had children. Peter had a mother-in-law living with him. And this crowd of people, probably hundreds of people, flocking to Peter's house to hear the Jewish Messiah. And now they are removing Peter's roof. Because there are so many people gathering around the Lord Jesus Christ, there was no other way to reach him. It's like Zacchaeus who had to climb up into a tree, Luke chapter 19, to see the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows humility. Acts chapter 9, the Lord Jesus Christ knocks Paul off his horse. And Paul goes down on his knees and says, Lord, what do you have me to do? It points back to humility and submission. And until you are lowly, until you are broken, you won't come to God, will you? And until you are broken, God won't come to you either. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Sins, plural, it's possible that this man's sins resulted in him becoming a cripple. That's possible. But of equal importance to me, he calls this man's son, Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus Christ is called the Everlasting Father. Not God the Father, you understand, but the Everlasting Father in reference to his relationship with Israel. At this point in time, the Lord is about 31, 32 years of age, thereabouts, and he's calling this man's son. This man could have been the same age as the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows authority as well for Jesus to call him son. But he says, your sins, plural, are forgiven you. Your sins have been forgiven, and this goes back also to justification in the sight of man, James chapter 2, versus justification in the sight of God, Romans chapter 4. This man had faith to be healed. This man believed on the Lord Jesus Christ before he arrived at Peter's property. And God saw his faith before he arrived at Peter's property, Romans chapter 4, and he no doubt gave him an imputed righteousness pre this point in time. So this man arrived as a saved sinner, if you will, and his faith, therefore, has now been witnessed in the presence of others, James chapter 2. And I'll say this also as another quick footnote. I believe it's quite possible that the apostles, all 11, excluding Judas, who was called a devil, John chapter 6, were already saved before the Lord Jesus Christ called them for service. Jesus Christ said to Nathanael, Behold a man in whom there is no guile, a man with no deceit, a godly, upright man. And we can see here how Peter's house was next to a synagogue, which suggests to me that he too was a godly Jew. They were saved, they would have had an imputed righteousness, but the Holy Spirit wasn't given to them until Jesus Christ had ascended back to heaven. If you go back to the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given to the kings of Israel and the prophets of Israel for service, for special anointings. 
not in reference to their salvation. But for the new covenants, everybody who is born again automatically receives the Holy Ghost. Verse 6. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Absolutely. When you sin against God, only God himself can forgive you. Never mind sending an angel to die for your sins, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Never mind sending a glorified man to die for your sins, which is what the Mormons believe. Never mind sending a wafer to die for your sins, which is what the Catholics believe. When you sin against God, only God himself can forgive you. But I'm more interested here in this verse in reference to the scribes sitting there. Sitting where? Precisely in Peter's house? It's possible. Peter was a faithful Jew, like I say, a saved Jew at this point of time. It's also more likely that perhaps the roof that was uncovered not only was in reference to Peter's house, that's obvious, but the roof could have perhaps been linked to the synagogue next door. But saying that, it's even more possible that these scribes are sitting in Peter's house. We know from the Gospel of John, when they came to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ, how the Apostle John knew the keeper of the palace of the high priest, and how John was able to go in to the palace of the high priest and then beckon Peter in. So it's quite possible that the Lord's apostles had good cordial relations, shall we say, with the religious elite from the first century. But these scribes are sitting there in Peter's house, quite possibly reasoning, questioning, murmuring about the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus being omniscient, he reads their hearts and he says to them in verse 8, And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easy to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed and walk? Both questions were valid, and both questions were loaded with theological connotation. What's the easiest thing to say to the sick of the palsy? Your sins are forgiven you? Or arise and take up your bed and walk. Two, in many ways, rhetorical questions. Two, in many ways, valid questions. And yet, as always, the Pharisees, or on this occasion, the scribes, would have been silenced. What could they say against this? It would have been heartless for them to have said to the Lord Jesus Christ, leave the cripple as he is. And as always, the Lord takes these people and uses their own poison against themselves. He takes the hardness of their hearts and turns it against them. Verse 10. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And that authority is given vicariously to all Bible-believing Christians. Based on the word of God, we too have the authority to tell an unsaved party, once they have been born again, that they are born again. Based on scripture, we can tell unsaved people, the moment they have received Christ as their saviour, that they are now forgiven of their sins. Verse 12, And immediately he arose, took up his bed, I went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. 
Like I say, you couldn't die, you couldn't be sick, you couldn't be indifferent in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, if you came to him, or if you were in his remit, if you came into a circle with no faith, if you snubbed him like the religious leaders did, if you blasphemed him like Pilate, Caiaphas and Herod did, then obviously you wouldn't have received anything. But for those people that came to him humbled in anticipation of a healing, or to be fed, or more importantly to be saved, they never left disappointed. Verse 13, And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude was ordered unto him, and he taught them. Crowds followed him, crowds flocked to him, thousands upon thousands of people travelled land and sea to see the Jewish Messiah. And if you want to be saved today, you need to come to the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for the road to hell is wide, but the gate, the entrance, the path to heaven is narrow, and few there be which find the way. Verse 14, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the seat of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Levi, of course, is Matthew. And Matthew was a tax collector. And these men, along with Peter and Andrew, James and John, left good occupations to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. Matthew would have been well known among his circle of tax collectors and sinners, meaning immoral people, prostitutes, whores, pimps, the lowest of the low. But because they saw a change in Matthew's life, because they were friends with Matthew, they too wanted to meet Jesus. So Jesus goes to Matthew's house and sits down and enjoys a meal with repentant Matthew and the Lord's disciples. If sinners want to know Jesus Christ, put yourself out for them. If sinners don't want to know Jesus Christ, separate yourself from them. But don't be aloof, don't be stuck up, don't be holy than thou, be available to unsaved people, always be about our Father's business, be ready in season and out of season to witness to unsaved people. Because when you arrive at the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus Christ will ask you, and you will ask me, who have we brought with us? He'll say to somebody like myself, James, you've been saved for X amount of years, who have you brought with you? And there's no point in saying, well, Lord, I got saved, and as long as I was saved, that was the main thing. He'll say, no, I wanted you, James, to bring people with you to heaven. And the same is true of you, and you, and you, and all of us, for that matter. Verse 16, And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? What's going on here? Your rabbi is a holy man. Your rabbi preaches the way of God. Your rabbi upholds the Tanakh, the Jewish Old Testament, and yet he is associating with pimps, whores, prostitutes, tax collectors. What's going on here? But these people had come to be saved. It was a religious crowd. It was the religious elite that stood afar off. 
who thought that somehow they were holier than thou. 2,000 years on, nothing much has changed. There's a tiny minority of Bible-believing Christians in the UK that go into the streets, that preach the gospel, that speak to unsaved people on a regular basis. But the priests and the vicars and the bishops and the cardinals, for the most part, are nowhere to be seen. They're too busy doing religion. And that's why it's going to be devastating when the judgment comes around. We know from the book of Revelation, there'll be tears in heaven. And some people say, well, that's in reference to tears of joy. That's possible, but it's also quite likely to be in reference to saved people arriving at the judgment seat of Christ to then realize there's nothing awaiting them. Tears of disappointment, tears of a wasted life. If you think going to church is the pinnacle of being a Christian, if you go to church two or three times a week, if you think that's enough, if you think that somehow that glorifies God, when your unsaved friends and family and neighbors are going to hell all around you, you are surely mistaken, my friend. Look at verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you are a self-righteous individual, if you are trusting in your good works, going to church, or maybe you don't go to any church, maybe you are one of those people that gives money to charity, Maybe you're that sort of person who is very busy in your community. Maybe you're a Freemason, or maybe you're part of the Rotary Club. Or maybe you're a Hindu, or a Sikh, or a Muslim, or a Jew. It makes no difference. If you're not repentant, if you haven't humbled yourself, if you haven't come via the Jewish carpenter to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God, you won't be saved. In fact, just yesterday, we were talking to a lady on the street who was looking at our ministry board, and she was puffing away in the cigarettes, and she said to me, uh, I have a problem with your scripture sign. And one of our scripture signs says that God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7. And Patrick said to her, well, the Bible says that. And the Bible says the road to hell is wide and many that be which go in there at. And the entrance to heaven is narrow. So who are all these people on the wide road? And she had no answer for that. And I said, look at this sign here. And I took around and showed her the other sign where it says the wages to sin is death. But the gift of God is everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I said to her, the problem is that most people, and I was referring to her, of course, create a God in their own image, which they feel comfortable with. And that, of course, is idolatry. I said to her, you either come via the Jewish carpenter, via the cross, or you don't come at all. And she said to me, okay, thank you. And she turned around, walked off, and turned her back to me as she continued to smoke her cigarette. She was seriously convicted, and she knew that she wasn't going to make any inroads with me. But Jesus says, I haven't come to call the righteous, people like her, but sinners, people like me, to repentance. Repentance, again, is a change of mind. It's a turn from unbelief to belief. It's a complete about turn. Turn from yourself to God. Come as you are, and he will receive you, and he will save you to the uttermost. And of course, in case you missed it, there are no works involved. The just shall live by faith. Verse 18, and the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and say unto him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Quite simply, Jesus Christ was still on the earth, living with them, feeding them, providing for them. Why would they need to fast when the author of life was still with them? But the time is coming when the Messiah will be taken from them, and then will they fast and mourn and weep as they await Pentecost. 19, and Jesus said unto them, 
can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Absolutely, you couldn't do anything. You didn't need anything whilst Jesus was on the earth. And for three and a half years, the 11 apostles, and I have to exclude Judas because he was a devil, would have been the happiest they've ever been in their entire life. They were saved pre the Lord's arrival, I believe. They would have received an imputed righteousness, as I say, like Abraham did, like I did when I got saved, like all of the biblical greats would have received. But living with him, walking with him, eating with him, would have been just amazing. It would have been the greatest time of their lives. And they remembered that right up until the day that they all died. 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. And then shall they fast in those days. And of course they would have fasted. They would have wept, as I say. They would have been greatly in distress. Waiting for Pentecost. Waiting for the Holy Ghost to empower them. And waiting for their orders from heaven. But for here and now... It's fellowship, it's prayer, it's discipleship. But take a look at verse 21, please. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else a new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. Very much picturing a comparison between the old covenants and the new covenants. Verse 23. And it came to pass that he went to the corn fields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was anhungered, he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God? In the days of Abathah the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. For Jesus Christ, to ask them, in 25, have you never read what David did when he was a hungered, was a great rebuke to them. These individuals, these scribes, these Pharisees, offered themselves as experts in the Old Testament. They, of course, had read the Old Testament many times, but their hearts were far from God. And I'll say this also, that Jesus Christ pointed back on at least 80 occasions to the Old Testament. He upheld Moses as the author of the first five books. He upheld the creation account from the book of Genesis. He upheld David as a literal king. He upheld Solomon as a literal king. He upheld Jonah as a literal prophet who was swallowed up by the great whale. Jesus Christ was a true biblicist. And he says to them, have you never read? Don't you know about King David? When he was hungry, how he went into the house of God during the days of Abathur the high priest. Jesus Christ has given these people a Bible lesson and they would have hated him for it. They deplored him. They despised him. But he wrote the Bible. God Almighty wrote the Bible. Yes, God commissioned 41 Jewish male authors living on three continents over a period of 1600 years apart to write the entire Bible. But the Holy Ghost inspired the men to write what they wrote. And the Holy Spirit inspired the writings more, particularly not the writers, in essence, 
to explain to the world the word of God. In other words, the writings are inspired, not the writers. People say that Shakespeare or Dickens or other greats were inspired writers. They felt inspired to write their writings. But the writers of the scripture, although inspired, it is the writings per se that were inspired, not the writers. Verse 27, And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, and the Sabbath was given to the Jews, not the Gentiles. And today, for those of us which are born again, Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. We're not bound to meet on any day of the week to remember him. Many of us choose to do so on a Sunday, the first day of the week, but we're not bound to do so. The Jewish Sabbath, therefore, technically was for the Jews under the Old Covenant. And also the Sabbath was a great time for rest. The Sabbath was a great time to read the Word of God and enjoy God. And the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles were hungry. And this also goes back to the Lord's human side. When he walked on the water, when he raised the dead, when he gave sight to the blind, he demonstrated his divine sight, his deity. But when he was tired, when he was hungry, when he slept, he demonstrated his human side, the Son of Man. But for him to say in verse 28, Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also the Sabbath, underscores very clearly his deity. He's Lord of the temple. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord over heaven and earth. He has authority to forgive sins on the earth. And that authority, like I say, is given vicariously to all born-again Bible-believing Christians when it comes to promising somebody who's just received Christ as a saviour that they are saved. You can tell someone you are now saved based on scripture, but you won't get that assurance of salvation until you are given it via the Holy Ghost. Romans chapter 8. So there you are, 28 verses conclude Mark chapter 2, and I believe that Peter is one of the unsung heroes. Peter does get criticised by many Christians, Peter failed the Lord on many occasions, and yet he allowed Jesus Christ to live in his house. He allowed these people to take his roof off in order to reach the Lord Jesus Christ. And eventually, John 21, Peter would be restored back into full fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I also believe that Peter, along with James and John, were not only in the Lord's inner circle for different reasons, but they were also included in some of the most intimate briefings and miracles based primarily on the fact that they were the weakest of the apostles. They needed much more work. They needed more encouragement. And also, God was going to use these men on a mighty scale. The first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, Peter is very much in the driving seat. John the Apostle was going to look after the Lord's mother and eventually die as a martyr for the Lord. And I'll say this very briefly. Mary the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, is only found once in the book of Acts. She's found in chapter 1, and she's found in 13th place. After Acts chapter 1, Mary is never mentioned again. She wasn't considered a special person of great significance, believe it or not, in the early church. Once she gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, her ministry ceased. 
So take these verses, read them, examine them, and you'll see time after time how sinners were saved by faith in Christ alone. Their faith was seen, first of all, in the eyes of God, Romans chapter 4, and their faith produced works, which was then seen in the sight of mankind, James chapter 2. And Jesus Christ, one last time, was always ready. He was always willing. He was always prepared to heal people at a moment's notice. But these people had to come to him on his terms in order to be healed. And it's like I said to the lady yesterday, unless you come on his terms, don't bother coming at all. And that's the absolute truth. It's his way or no way at all. So next up, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. At this point in the Lord's ministry, he's solely focused on the people of Israel. Yes, occasionally Gentiles were healed, like the South Phoenician woman and a couple of Roman proselytes. And yes, John the Baptist baptized a few Gentiles, like Roman soldiers, but for the most part, the Lord Jesus Christ at this point in his ministry is solely interested in the people of Israel. Salvation is of the Jews, John chapter 4. So here he goes back into a synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. Look at verse 2. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. What a terrible way to end that verse that they might accuse him. This poor man has a withered hand, and no doubt, like the poor man from Mark chapter 2 with an unclean spirit, had gone to the synagogue every Saturday, and yet the rabbis couldn't help this poor man any more than they could help the other man with the unclean spirit. Organized religion was totally incapable of helping such people. And like that person I gave you last time, who died a Catholic very recently, who suffered with the problem of drink and smoking, and this person's religion didn't allow them to get the victory over alcohol or tobacco. And this poor man, like I say one more time, has a withered hand, and they are watching him on the Sabbath in anticipation to pounce, to accuse him, the Lord Jesus Christ, of somehow breaking the Sabbath, which is already told us from the last verse of chapter 2, how he, the Son of Man, is Lord, also the Sabbath, and how the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Look at verse 3, please. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they held their peace. Once again, it's almost a rhetorical question. And even if it was to be taken literally, even if he actually expected a response from them, what could they say in reality? So what did they do as cowards? They held their peace. They sat on their hands. They waited in anticipation for the Lord Jesus Christ to somehow fall into their trap. But of course, he outsmarted them at every possible turn. Look at verse 5, please. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. 
Nobody can do that today, anywhere in the world. Paul suffered with poor eyesight all of his life. He prayed to the Lord on many occasions to be healed of his poor eyesight. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for thee. Timothy had ulcers, and yet he too never received the healing that no doubt he wanted. Sometimes the Lord leaves people in sickness for his glory. But this man in the synagogue on this occasion has had his hand restored whole as the other. And again, the Pharisees and the scribes in the synagogue would have been incredulous. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, is stealing our glory. He's taking people from us. But of course, that's not what he came for. Mankind is made in the image of God. Mankind is made to worship God. And here God Almighty in the person of Jesus Christ is doing what was foretold of him back in the Old Testament. He's taking their sicknesses from them. He's healing them. And he's offering those that would believe on him everlasting life. Verse 6. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him. How they might destroy him. There's your conspiracy. It goes back to the Old Testament. The Jews for the most part rejected their kings and their prophets and their priests. And it's going through into the New Testament now. Verse 7. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. This almost mirrors the book of Acts, where Paul says to the unbelieving Jews, because you have rejected us and the gospel, we are now going to go to the Gentiles. And here, because the unbelieving Jewish leaders from the synagogue didn't really want to receive his message, he turns from them and heads off into Judea and Jerusalem and so on and so forth, and great multitudes followed him. And we know from the book of Luke how the common people heard him gladly. The average man and woman in the street, for the most part, were very attentive to the things of the Lord. Verse 9, And he spoke to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. He didn't want a stampede to occur. And as always, he's thinking about other people. His time wasn't yet come. These people couldn't have harmed him directly or indirectly because his time had not yet come. But they could have caused a stampede, like I say. So as always, he's thinking of other people. And he says, have a small ship wait on me to avoid the multitude, the crowds thronging me, crowding me, causing a riot. Not for his sake necessarily, but for his apostles and for those that were going to believe on him. Look at verse 10. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues and unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him, and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Like I said last time, he wasn't interested in recognition from unclean spirits. He wasn't even interested in recognition for mankind. He came to preach salvation, he came to heal the sick, and he came to feed, on certain occasions, those that were lacking food, those that were almost at the point of starvation. He was the great miracle maker. He was the loving saviour of the world. 13. And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. The Lord Jesus Christ on many occasions went up into mountains 
where he prayed, where he spent time with his disciples. Going up into a mountain or high place in and of itself is not a problem. Yes, it's true back in the Old Testament, many of the apostates, Jewish leaders, priests and kings would worship to false deities up on the high places, that's true. But Samuel went up to a high place to sacrifice unto the Lord and the Lord God gave Moses the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai and Jesus Christ on many occasions went up into a mountain to pray, to fast and to teach his apostles the deeper things of God. So it's not the high places per se that are problematic, it's what you do in the high places. And he has gone up into a mountain and he's called unto him whom he would in reference to the soon anointing or ordination of the twelve apostles. Verse 14, And he ordained twelve, that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boinagus, which is the sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into an house. And this is why I said last time how the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, although they are the same thing, there are different aspects to it, and part of the kingdom of heaven was to not only call twelve men to become his apostles, but he gave these twelve men power to preach and to heal and to cast out devils which is not applicable for those of us living today in the kingdom of God. Like I said last time, we live in a spiritual kingdom. The just shall live by faith. But for these Jewish apostles, they were living in a physical kingdom with a physical king, but not yet on a throne. And part of their ministry was to heal sick people within Israel. The apostles were sent out to the children of Israel, not the Gentiles, only on a few occasions will you find some Gentiles being healed or come into contact with the Jewish Messiah. But for the most part, Jesus Christ has sent his 12 Jewish male apostles out with the Jewish apostolic sign gifts to heal those that were in need of healing from within the nation of Israel. And also of interest to me from this group of 12, he gives... James and John, a new surname, Boinagus, meaning the sons of thunder. Why? Because they had great tempers. They were very hot-headed. They were argumentative. They wanted to call fire down from heaven on one occasion. So Peter gets a new surname, as does James and John. And this needs to be said because sometimes this gets missed by Catholic apologists when they make a big song and dance about Peter being given a surname. But so was James and John. And we know from Acts chapter 12 how James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred for his faith and how his brother John would be given the responsibility of looking after Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's quite possible that John would also have looked after her other children because at that time they would have been too young to look after themselves. And also Simon commences the listing of the apostles and each of the synoptic gospels always lists Judas as a traitor. But they went into an house, unlikely to be Peter's house. I can't imagine his house would have been that large to now accommodate 12 men on top of everyone else that was living there. But uh, this would have been another base for the apostles and his 12 apostles to use 
to live in during their busy ministry. Every day they were out traveling, preaching, working. There was no vacation for these men. They were working every day. They were full-time evangelists, if you will. But look at verse 20. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. He's just chosen 12 men to become his apostles, and straight away the multitude are coming to him to hear the word of God. Like I just said, the apostles and the Lord worked every single day of the week. There was no sitting around, putting your feet up, enjoying a movie, going fishing, or scuba diving, or watching a football match, or a soccer match, or a tennis match. They were working. They were trying to reach out to unsaved people. And you can take these verses and use them spiritually today, if you are an evangelist, if you are a soul winner, to redeem in the time, because the days are evil. But look at verse 21. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. For they said, he is beside himself. This term for friends means acquaintances. This term for friends really does mean his extended family. Not necessarily his mother and his unbelieving brothers, but distant cousins perhaps, maybe some of Joseph's family. And they thought he was beside himself. They thought he'd lost his mind. And I remember a brother telling me years ago when he first got saved, his own family thought he'd lost his mind. And they wanted to section him. They wanted to put him into a mental institution. Because he was born again, he was completely redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And his unsaved family, like here, unsaved friends, thought he had lost his mind. But he hadn't lost his mind. He was born again. And he loved the Lord. And he did what he could for the Lord. And here the Lord's friends, his extended family, thought he was beside himself. And he says, isn't he, a prophet is never recognized in his own community. And they wanted to take him aside. They wanted to detain him. They wanted to protect him. They meant well, of course, but they were ignorant of the things of God, like Peter was. Peter said to the Lord, you won't go to the cross. And he says, Satan, get behind me. He rebukes the spirit behind Peter for trying to thwart his soon death on the cross. And these people, his friends, his extended family, meaning well, as I say, no doubt, but nevertheless, they were ignorant of his ministry and temporarily were, in essence, at enmity with him. And no doubt the devil was behind them as they tried to stop him doing what he was going to do. But as always, he doesn't even entertain it. He continues on with his ministry in earnest. Verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. That's a disgusting thing to say. And this is going to lead up to the unpardonable sin. Just yesterday I was on the street doing some outreach. And a lady walked down with two friends. And on her t-shirt she had Baal. She had Baphomet. She had Lucifer. And some other names which I couldn't quite make out. And I tried to make eye contact with her. I wanted to give her a tract. But she made no eye contact with me. And she deliberately looked straight through me. I couldn't reach her. I tried to give her a tract. But she wasn't interested. And here the scribes have come down from Jerusalem and they are infuriated once again by his popularity. So now they're going to dishonor him. They're going to blaspheme him. This is the lowest of the low when it came to their attacks against him. 23. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Now the switch goes from plain teaching, which everybody could understand, to parables, 
which were riddles. He's going to speak to them in parables because they are under the judgment of God. But later on, he will expound all things to his disciples. And he says very clearly, how can Satan cast out Satan? He's saying, if I have come from Satan, why am I casting out Satan? Why am I casting out unclean spirits from your own people? It's a great question and the insinuation that somehow Jesus Christ was casting out Satan by Satan was ridiculous. But again, these are unsaved individuals who are desperately trying to hold on to their power base. Look at 24. And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Absolutely. You can't have two captains running a ship. You can't have two people running the same kingdom. It doesn't work that way. Clearly Jesus represents one kingdom and Satan represents another kingdom. 25. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. That's true as well. You can't have two people living in a house divided and yet somehow being united. 26. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. His days are limited as well. This lady from yesterday with her t-shirt on, with all those ungodly names, she's backing a loser. One of the names in that t-shirt was Lucifer. And had she made eye contact with me, I would have said to her, do you know where your man's going to go at the end of time? According to Revelation, he's going into the lake of fire. And if you are not careful, you are following him. Verse 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. That sin, I don't think, is relevant to today. These leaders saw the Lord in the flesh, and these leaders, over a period of time, rejected him, blasphemed him, and tried to turn others away from him, resulting in them blaspheming the Holy Ghost. Because what they were saying in essence was everything that he was doing, all the good that he was doing, wasn't down to God, but it was down to Satan. They were blaspheming the Holy Ghost. They were saying that the Holy Ghost was Satan, which of course is a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's the unpardonable sin. And he says all sins that men commit can be forgiven, but those that blaspheme against the Holy Ghost have never forgiveness can never be forgiven. In reference, I believe, to this group of unbelieving scribes and Pharisees foretold back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to be precise, that were blinded through God's foreknowledge. They were under the judgment of God. They couldn't believe in the Lord. They couldn't see the Lord. They were blinded. And he says they have no forgiveness of sins ever because they said, 30, he hath an unclean spirit. That is what the unpardonable sin is in a nutshell. Verse 31. Then came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. His mother and his brothers are outside the synagogue, and they're calling to him. And this is interesting because the Catholic Church would have you believe that Mary is the Queen of Heaven, and that she had no children after she gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. But here it says... His mother and his brethren, his brothers, were outside calling him. It's also interesting to me 
that they weren't inside the synagogue at the feet of the Son of God, but they're outside. And they're calling to him, and he doesn't stop his meeting and say, hold on a minute, my mother's outside, the Queen of Heaven. He says in verse 32, And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And they say to him, in essence, your brothers, and no doubt your sisters, along with your mother, are outside desiring to see thee. 33. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? Again, he completely bypasses his family, being his physical family, of course, his blood mother and his half-brothers and sisters. And he says, Who is my mother or my brethren? 34. And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. What a put down. He doesn't say, Stand aside, people, let my mother and my brothers and sisters come through. He says, No. 35. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and my sister and mother. And from John chapter 6, the will of God is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So, no special favours here for his mother and his brothers and his sisters. They too would have to do the will of God in order to become his brother, his sister and his mother. Meaning quite simply, they too would have to be born again. They would have to be born from above. They too would need to be regenerated. And Mary says, I rejoice in God my Saviour. And we know from John 7 that at that point in the Lord's ministry, many of his brothers had not yet believed on him. But we know after the resurrection, his brothers believed on him. And I also believe one of his half-brothers, Jude, known as Judas, was chosen to be one of his twelve apostles. Only Dr. Luke gives us that account. Matthew and Mark omit Jude, Judas, as one of the twelve, and they go for Thaddeus. And that's another issue for another day. But what he's really driving home here is the point that his own mother, his own brethren, his own sisters would have to believe on him in order to be born again, to be received by God the Father into heaven, to be regenerated, to be his true brethren in a spiritual sense, of course. So Mark chapter 3 started with the Lord Jesus Christ inside a Jewish synagogue, teaching and preaching to people, and it ends with his own blood family outside of a Jewish synagogue, which pictures in a spiritual sense their need to enter into the synagogue to receive the Lord's clear teachings of reconciliation. For this point in the Lord's ministry, the synagogue, the temple, embodied salvation. Post the Gospels, post the resurrection, salvation is offered to Jew and Gentile everywhere and anywhere. But at this point in time, it's still all about Israel. And we also saw along the way how the Jewish leaders were guilty of blaspheming the Holy Ghost and committing the unpardonable sin. Satan is found several times throughout chapter 3. He was never far off from the Lord's ministry. But that didn't stop Jesus Christ doing what he had to do. And we also saw from chapter 3 how he chose the 12 apostles to go out to the children of Israel to heal them, to cast out devils from them. Devils, plural, one more time. The devil, Satan, being singular. And even in the midst of all this unbelief, all these attacks and snide remarks, he heals a man 
of a withered hand, because he's a miracle maker, because he loves mankind. And as I said, because he loves mankind, because he's mindful of others, he says in verse 9, Have a ship, wait on me, because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. He was thinking of other people, like I say. He didn't want people to be crushed and die. So he put himself in a position of safety to stop others from potentially being killed. So 35 verses conclude Mark chapter 3. And he says one final time in verse 35. For whosoever, without exception, shall do the will of God, appropriate the atonement, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. The just shall live by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Next up, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And he began again to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where had not much earth. And immediately it sprung up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and it yielded fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some an hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. When the Lord Jesus Christ spoke in parables, he did so, first of all, because the vast majority of the Jewish people and leaders for that matter were under the judgment of God. So a parable was more than just a riddle. A parable was a truth laced with analogies and metaphors. And yet you go to the Pauline epistles, there are no parables there. So this is very much a theme found almost exclusively in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. But the problem here, when it comes to understanding the roots or the foundations of certain groups of people, is that for the most part, the vast majority of people had built their foundation on an inferior root. They had a head knowledge, not a heart knowledge. They were religious, yes, but they were not regenerated. And this goes back to easy believism, a very simple and flawed doctrine which is so endemic in church circles today where a person can literally give a mental consent to the things of the Lord and somehow they're good to go but of course you must be born again and like I said last time unless you are broken unless you have come to the end of yourself unless you see yourself as the Lord sees you as a filthy reprobate a despicable disgusting sinner who's worthy of everlasting hell Unless you come to him on his terms, don't come at all. And because so many people have a head knowledge, as I say, because so many people have given a mental consent to the things of the Lord, they fall away very quickly. And we know that churches are full 
of unsaved people. I've spoken already how unsaved, devil-possessed people are found in the synagogues throughout Israel during the Lord's time. And the churches today in the 21st century are not only filled with equally disturbed and confused people, many times with emotional problems, but more importantly, they are lost. They are simply unregenerated. And that's why it's imperative to read the Word of God, to study it, to apply it, and be a doer of the Word of God. Don't just sit back and look at the cross in an emotional state. Receive him. Reach out to him like a beggar would do. And say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, please save me. Lord, I believe on you. I believe you died for my sins. Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just reach out to him. Humble yourself. Talk to him like you talk to a close friend or your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter or your grandmother or your grandfather. Just speak to him like you speak to somebody who you know and say, please, Lord, save me. I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm worthy of everlasting hell, but I believe you died for me. Trust him. Receive him. And of course, also with the problem of easy believism, there's no doubt spirits behind many of these groups, the distractions of the world. The Bible tells us, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Everywhere you turn, there are distractions, temptations, groups and people seeking to get your mind off the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you something, as a street evangelist for 13 years now, I've had so many conversations with people and the distractions that occur when you're really deep in a conversation are quite incredible. I was talking to a street cleaner just a couple of weeks ago and we had a good conversation and I was explaining the deeper things of the Lord to him and almost out of nowhere it started to snow and the snow was coming down quite hard and I thought this is typical. I've had about 25-30 minutes with him and I was almost finished with him anyway but uh, when the snow started to fall I thought okay maybe it's time to wrap this thing up. That could be the Lord as well telling me to move on and focus on somebody else but distractions as I say are always a problem and you just got to keep persevering on. But verse 8 he says, and other fell on good ground. This is a much firmer foundation. And it yielded fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth. Some thirty and some sixty and some an hundred. In reference to the fruits of the Spirit, quite possibly. And some people are going to bring forth thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and even a hundredfold. It's possible to enjoy all of the fruits of the Spirit. But 30, 60, and 100, three groups that he lists are more likely. And I think most people are probably going to fall between the 30 and the 60. I doubt there are many Christians living today that have reached the 100-fold. I think most Christians are just treading water. I think most Christians are just doing the very basic elements of Christianity, if you will. They're just going through the basic principles of Christianity. And I'll be honest with you, I think most Christians are doing the very least possible when it comes to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a great shame. Like I said last time, if you are happy, if you are content to go to church once or twice a week, 
if you think you've reached the pinnacle of Christianity, you're greatly mistaken. And I'll say this, if you're not a churchgoer, if you're not even a Bible believer, but you think you are good in the eyes of the Lord, you think you're good to go, my friend, the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You might be kidding yourself, you might be trying to turn from biblical Christianity, you may have bought into evolution, the science religion, but I'll tell you this, there are many scientists that hold to creation and also hold to science. You can be a Christian who holds to science, but my criticism of those sorts of people is that for the most part they hold to the old earth hypothesis, and I am a young earth Bible believer. I think sometimes these groups try to have the best of both worlds. They want to fit in with the church on the one hand, and they want to fit in with science on the other hand. You can be a true scientist, like I say, but when you hold to the older theory and try to match it up with Genesis, you try to spiritualize Genesis, then I think you're heading for a hard fall and you're kidding yourself. Also, I'll say this when it comes to examining the foundation that you are trusting in. There's only one foundation when it comes to everlasting life, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. The root of our salvation is Jewish. The root is holy. And we, the Bible-believing Gentiles, which have been saved, are grafted in to the true roots of Israel. Hence why you cannot be anti-Semitic. Hence why you cannot be into a placement theology. The root sustains us, the church. We don't sustain the roots. So out goes all these other beliefs and doctrines of others teaching you that it's possible to be a good Hindu, a good Muslim, a good Jew, a good Catholic, a good Freemason, a good this, a good that, and still go to heaven when you die. It's foolishness. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is exclusive. You come his way or no way, and if you come to him, you come in his terms. You humble yourself. Like I say, get on your knees. Cry out to him like a beggar would do. I say, Lord, please be merciful to me, a sinner. And the scripture says, Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord in reference to Jesus Christ, shalt be saved. Present tense, and no works involved. Look at verse 9. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And that was a problem, because many people didn't have ears to hear or eyes to see. Many people were lost in their sins. Many people were kicking against the truth of the gospel. And that was the main problem, was it not, from the Old Testament? The vast majority of Jews from the Old Testament didn't believe the actual writings of the Old Testament. The vast majority of Jews from the Old Testament did not believe their own prophets and kings and priests. And that's why the Old Testament writers wrote down in time what they saw occurring during the Lord's ministry, which is what foreknowledge is. And that's why it's so tragic when Christ arrived on the earth. The vast majority of people had no idea who he was. But it says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many... As received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. What a great scripture. His own rejected him, that's tragic, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the right or the power or the authority to become the sons or daughters of God. Once again, it's all through faith alone. The just shall live by faith. And we get grafted in, we are incorporated into spiritual Israel, but the root remains Jewish. The foundation remains Jewish. Verse 10. And when he was alone, 
They that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. Those that were with him with the twelve would be the seventy, no doubt, and they wanted him to explain the parable to them. You have to understand also that the apostles and the seventy were also growing at their own rates. Too much information too soon can crash a person. It's a drip, drip effect. And that's one of the main reasons why Jesus Christ spent three and a half years on the earth with his own little flock to build them up. Progressive revelation. Go back to the Old Testament. Each generation were given more information from the Lord Jesus Christ about who he was. The same is true in the New Testament. Every day, every week, every month, every year, the Lord Jesus Christ would reveal more of himself to his flock. And that's why they wanted to know more about the parables along with the 70. Verse 11. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted, and their sins should be forgiven them. That's a very damning piece of scripture. He's saying it's for you to know these things, i.e. the twelve and the seventy, and of course for charity those that are going to come after them, which are going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to the multitude of people, it's not for them to know the true meaning of the Lord's message. They were under a perpetual curse. They've been spiritually blinded by Satan himself. Second Corinthians chapter 4. And that really is just so tragic that the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die for the sins of the world, who wept over Jerusalem, has to explain to his own flock how the vast majority of people have eyes but cannot see, have ears but cannot hear, lest at any time they should be converted. 12. And their sins, plural, should be forgiven them. It was impossible for that group of unbelieving Jewish leaders to be saved. But by the end of the first century, that group of unbelieving Jews had died out. The temple had been destroyed by Titus in 70 AD. And by the end of the first century, the church was predominantly Gentile. So that curse foretold back in Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel had been fulfilled. And yet saying that, I will say this, to this day there are still far too many Jews that don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's quite possible that they too are under the curse of their forefathers when it comes to this spiritual blindness, which goes right back to the Exodus, a mixed multitude leaving Egypt, which is a type of the world system, as they headed off into the promised land. And many of them, as we know, fell and died in the wilderness. They spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. It could have taken 40 weeks. It could have taken 40 hours to arrive in the promised land. But due to sin, due to indifference, due to the Lord's judgment on the vast majority of that early generation, only a few made it into the promised land. Moses didn't make it, Aaron did not make it, Miriam did not make it. But look at verse 13. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? There's a slight rebuke. He's almost saying, You should know these things. I've been with you now for over a year, and I've used parables in the past, and yet it's rather intriguing just how many times the apostles forgot the lessons that the Lord Jesus Christ had repeatedly taught them. Their memory span perhaps was limited 
and on many occasions they were too busy arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. 14. The sower soweth the word, and these are they by the wayside, where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately, and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. There he is again, Satan, that old dragon known as Lucifer. He's never far away from organised religion. He's very interested in organised religion. 16. And these are they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. John the Baptist was offended by the Lord's ministry, but he obviously did not lose his salvation. You can't lose your salvation, but he was offended. Nevertheless, and the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with that. And the reason why he was offended, in essence, was because he failed to understand the two dispensations of the Lord's ministry. The first coming, to die for the sins of the world, separated by the church age, which John would not necessarily have known. That was revealed primarily to Paul. And then, of course, the second coming of Christ, which is initiated with the rapture of the church, which is then followed by seven years, known as a great tribulation, which then sees the physical return of Christ to the earth. So John was offended, like I say, he had limited knowledge of the Lord's ministry, but this term here, falling by the wayside, Satan arriving, taken from them, that which was initially put in their hearts, goes back to what I've just been saying, that unless your foundation is Christ-centered, Unless you've come to Christ on his terms, this is what's going to occur. Your faith and your foundation are going to be challenged almost straight away by Satan. And that term Satan means adversary. He is our adversary. He goes around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour whom he will. He's a counterfeit of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I'll say this, that without your Bible... Without the Holy Spirit, which you received the moment you were born again, you couldn't tell the difference between Christ and the Antichrist. You couldn't tell the difference between Jesus and Satan. And that's the horrifying truth of what goes on on a daily basis. There's a spiritual war going on all around us, an invisible spiritual war that we can only deal with when we have the Word of God and the Holy Ghost, which we get the moment we are born again. Look at verse 18, please. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. That could be in reference to a Christian who falls into carnality. That could be in reference to a Christian who takes his or her eyes off the Lord and falls into the trap of the world system. I think it was Demas who forsook Paul, loving this present world. You can go from a position of being a faithful disciple to being an apostate disciple. You won't necessarily lose your salvation, but it's quite possible you will lose your testimony and arrive at the judgment seat with nothing to show for your past life. All your rewards are gone. All your good works are burnt up at the judgment seat of Christ. 20. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it. And bring forth fruits, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some an hundred. This is once again the Lord expounding to his initial circle, his small flock, 
the true meaning of the parable. He won't explain the parable to the unsaved people. That's the whole point of him speaking in parables in the presence of unsaved people because this message is sacred. Don't cast your pearls before swine. So he's going to take the time to explain the deep meaning of the parable and other parables to his church, his inner circle of followers. And like I say, Paul never used any parables. Peter never used any parables. James never used any parables. And the reason for that, quite simply, is because the epistles, all the letters post Acts of the Apostles are written to saved people. Acts of the Apostles is a transitional book. Acts of the Apostles is a history of the early church, all 28 chapters. But the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are biographies, first of all, of the Lord's time on the earth. 80% of the content, like I say, is law. 80% of the content found, especially in Matthew, Mark and Luke, is for the Jews under the law. And 80% of what you find in John's Gospel is unique to John's Gospel alone. But I still think Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are primarily biographies written by eyewitnesses or contemporaries of the Lord Jesus Christ covering what it was to be a Jew under the law when the Jewish Messiah arrived to preach to them. And yet I've already shown you how you can harmonise parts of the Gospels in light of the epistles and not teach heresy not get overly confused and he says in verse 20 how these are they which are sown on good ground they are built on the rock which is christ matthew chapter 7 he speaks about building your house on the rock so when the floods come when the judgment comes you are immovable you are solid your feet are almost screwed to the ground you can't be moved you can't be shifted because you've built your foundation, you've sown your seed on the good ground, which of course is Christ Jesus. And you're going to bring forth fruit, which could be 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. Verse 21. And he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man of ears to hear, let him hear. Once you're born again, your light should shine. There's no such thing as a secret service Christian. If you're born again, people should know that you're born again. But he goes back to that expression in 23. If any man of ears to hear, let him hear. He's still very much aware that this message is only going to be applicable to the minority. The vast majority of people... Are going to miss it for the vast majority of people his message will go right over their heads and that goes back to matthew chapter 7 where the road to hell is wide it's broad and most people that have ever lived or are going to live are going to end up on the broad road to destruction but the gate the entrance the path to everlasting life which of course is via jesus christ is narrow and few there be which find the gate. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And everybody thinks they have the truth, but the truth is found in a person, Jesus Christ. Verse 24, And he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that hath, to him shall be given. And he that hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he hath. It's almost a paradox. If you've got something, 
more will be given to you, and what you don't have will be taken from you as well. It's a sense of urgency, it's a sense of digging in deep to the Word of God, and it's a sense of making your calling and election sure. Make sure you've truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to the previous verses, examine the foundation that your life or your faith is built upon. If you're trusting in a prayer to save you, it could be the sinner's prayer, or if you're trusting in a baptism or confirmation to save you, that won't do it. You must be born again. You need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ via the cross. You must be born again. Examine yourself in light of Scripture, please. Verse 26, And he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep, and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear. After that, the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. These types of verses underscore the great maturity of the Lord. And these verses underscore the fact that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. He can speak to any group of people on any given occasion concerning any given subject and he was always applicable he was always relevant to those people that he would come into contact with and of course the analogy here is simply that of a farmer the earth bringing forth fruit of herself the earth brings forth fruit from herself which points back to the book of genesis of course a kind begets a kind the fruit comes from within the earth but let's move on, if we may, please. Verse 30. And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? You can't really compare the kingdom of God to anything because it's unique. It's so pure. It's incredible. It's a spiritual kingdom and it's a physical kingdom. But he goes on to say in verse 31, It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up, and becometh greater than all herbs, and shooteth out great branches, so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. That's a fascinating piece of scripture. The fowls of the air picture unclean spirits, and they lodge under the shadow of it, under the shadow of the branches. Matthew 13, he says, the fowls of the air lodge in the branches, which shows me that the church is always going to be a magnet to the fowls of the air, the wheat and the tares, live side by side, picturing saved and unsaved people. But here the fowls of the air are very interested in the church, which goes back to what I said already from chapter 2, when we saw the devil-possessed man in the synagogue, underlying one more time that Satan is very interested in organized religion. Verse 33, And with many such parables spake he the word unto them, as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. Bit by bit, as I say, he's going to build them up. Look at verse 35, please. And the same day, when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. It's time to move on, he's saying. There are... Scores of people that have gathered to hear the word of God, but it's time for us to move on. And this is a piece of interesting scripture to me because this miracle which is about to occur 
is initiated, I believe, down to the supernatural ability of the Lord Jesus Christ to draw his apostles closer to him, to increase their faith. 37. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? That term master means rabbi. And of course he wasn't fast asleep, indifferent to what was going on. Yes, he may have been asleep as far as they were concerned, but this has been carefully orchestrated by the sovereign Lord of the universe. 39. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. That's deity. To rebuke the wind and to say to the sea, Peace, be still, underscores one more time that he is God Almighty. And also please understand that this also shows that he is Lord over Satan because Satan is called Leviathan. And of course, Leviathan comes from the sea. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is claiming dominion over the sea. 40. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Yet another rebuke, and it underscores just how fragile his apostles were. It underscores how they were still very much like children. They were growing so slowly. And he says, How is it that ye, all of you, have no faith. Why are you doubting me? Do you honestly think I'm going to allow you to drown on a ship that I am on? Of course not. But they forgot lesson after lesson. They had to be reminded time after time as to what his purpose was, as to why he was there on the earth. And that's why it's imperative as Bible believers to read the word of God each and every day. 41. And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Progressive revelation, and it's obvious at this point in the Lord's ministry that they were still grasping the enormity as to who the Lord Jesus Christ was. Even his own mother Mary pondered all these things in her heart. She too didn't quite understand the enormity as to who he was. And that's a great thing about God. He's never in a rush to give you too much too soon. He's happy and content for you to grow at your own rate. Just don't doubt him. Just don't question him. Just be faithful and say, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't understand that. Please help me to understand the deeper things of God. So chapter 4 started with the Lord preaching by the seaside on a boat. And it ends with him boarding another boat. But this time taking authority over the wind and the sea. This is Captain Jesus at his best. This is Captain Jesus in charge of the elements. He's Lord over the elements. And he's drawing his in a circle closer to him to reinforce his deity. He wants them to trust in him. He wants them to keep their eyes focused on him. He doesn't want them to keep panicking and falling away or struggling or battling indifference or fear. He's saying, keep your eyes on me. And 2,000 years later, that's still very much the same for us today. He's saying to us today, keep your eyes on me. If I begun a good work in you, I will bring it to completion. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. That's his mandate. That's his remit for us. He gives us everlasting life. But once he does so, he doesn't just leave us to struggle, to 
start to drown in the water. He wants us to stay with him, to walk with him, to draw close to him. So check your foundation, make sure you have trusted him to the uttermost, make sure you have believed on him and in him and only in him. Make sure your foundation is fixed to the finished work of the Lord on the cross and allow him to do a work in your life each and every day. And I'll close with verse 41 one more time. And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Incredible. Deity, deity, deity. Next up, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadareans. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains. Because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. This is the worst case of devil possession anywhere in the New Testament. This man had great strength. He was bound with fetters and chains, and he broke them in pieces. He's almost like a wild beast, totally incapable of being tamed. And his abode is in the mountains, in the tombs, with the unclean spirits. Look at verse 5. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Day and night he's crying and cutting himself with stones. We call that today self-harm. When people harm themselves excessively and when people cry excessively, that's normally a picture of an unclean spirit tormenting a disturbed party. Also from Luke's account, this man was naked. Nakedness is abnormal. Nakedness pictures on many occasions devil possession. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. This is incredible. This man runs to the Lord and worships him. There was no doubt in the mind of this unclean spirit who the Lord Jesus Christ was. And we know from Matthew and Luke and John how on many occasions a multitude worshipped him. In John 13, he says, You call me Lord and Master, and so I am. This man was no exception. And also he speaks with a loud voice, which underscores devil possession. It's also a counterfeit to somebody who is spirit-filled. Elizabeth was spirit-filled, and she spoke with a loud voice when Mary entered her property. But here, this man speaks with a loud voice, demonstrating that he is possessed by an unclean spirit. But the last parts of verse 7, I adjure thee by God, that thou torment me not. This unclean spirit knows that a day is coming when he is going to be consigned to the lake of fire. He fears the Lord, but at the same time he has to worship him. And yet, if you go to university today, you are trained out of being a theist. You are trained to be an atheist. You are trained to believe in the science religion. But here in the word of God, these unclean spirits, individuals in general, when they met the Lord Jesus Christ, for the most part, bowed down and worshipped him. And he accepted it because he's God. Look at verse 8. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. He's still dealing with the main spirit here, 
And I believe Luke tells us that there were two maniacs, but Mark and Matthew focus just on the one. And the Lord says, come out of the man. Like I say, he's dealing with the main culprit here. Look at verse 9. And he asked him, what is thy name? And he answered, saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion means 6,000. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. This man had 6,000 devils inside of him. And some people think that devils are like flies or mosquitoes, tiny insects. This man must have been in great torment. Like I say, he was almost like a wild beast, chained, and yet he had great strength. And he was naked, and he was crying, he was cutting himself. All the signs of being devil-possessed. My name is Legion, for we are many. 10. And he besought him much, that he would not send him away out of the country. He singular besought him much, Jesus, that he would not send them, plural, away out of the country. Some people say this man had a split personality, but the Bible tells you very clearly he had 6,000 devils inside of him, and he's desperate to stay where he is. In some ways, he almost feels safe up on the mountain, looking down on people. And like I said last time, what you do in the mountains or the high places is the issue. Mountains and high places per se are not the problem. It's what you do in the mountains and the high places. 11. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. All the devils, at the same time perhaps, pleading with the Lord to send them into the swine. What a scene that must have been. 6,000 devils all speaking at once. Must have been terrifying. And they want to go into the swine, into the pigs. And of course for the Jews, pigs are unclean animals. 13. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in a sea. If you were to purchase 2,000 pigs today, that would cost you about £125,000, which is about $200,000. And the Lord says, you know what? This man is of more importance to me than 2,000 pigs. So he says, okay then, 14. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. 2,000 pigs have now departed down a steep place into the sea and have drowned. And the Lord Jesus Christ said on this occasion, I'm quite happy to wreck a local economy if it results in the salvation of one man. And like I say, I believe it's Luke's account. He tells you there were two devil-possessed men and clearly both would have received redemption at this point in time. And now word has spread like wildfire as to what has just occurred. Look at 15. And they came to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind for they were afraid he's now clothed which is normal obviously and he's sitting at the feet of the lord in submission that's how it should be and he's got the perfect peace of mind the perfect peace which passes all understanding and they were afraid of course they were a great miracle had just occurred and on top of that they've lost two hundred thousand dollars worth of pigs 16 and they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil, and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. They're saying, Lord, please leave. 
our coasts, our borders, please leave. You're bad for business. You've just cost us £125,000. You've ruined 2,000 pigs. But what does the scripture say? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We know from the word of God how they rejoice in heaven over the salvation of one man. So we just take this one man from this account of scripture. The Lord says, you know what? He's worth $200,000 to me. And I'm happy and content to allow the unclean spirits to go into the pigs, which, like I say, were unclean animals in the eyes of the Jews anyway. Look at 18. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. He's saying, Go as you are. Never mind going back to the priest on this occasion. Go to your friends and tell them what I've done for you. And this is a picture of evangelism as well. Also on top of this, the Lord's got his 70 and he's got his 12. He doesn't want any more disciples. He wants his man to go to his friends who have been probably missing him for, I suggest, 12 years. And I'll come back to the 12 years in a minute. And he says, go and tell your friends what great things the Lord hath done for thee, Lord. Jehovah, Adonai, Jesus Christ is claiming deity. Look at 20. And he departed and began to publish it in Decapolis, how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. I'm born again, I'm saved, I'm washed in the blood. You just imagine it, can't you? I've been set free from 6,000 devils. And all men did marvel. That should be a picture of a person's salvation. I'm now born again. I've got victory over the flesh. I'm living for the Lord. And people should marvel at your testimony. You should be a changed person if you've been born again. 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. Wherever he went, crowds followed him, and he healed many people, he fed many people, and yet by Acts chapter 1, only 120 people are in the upper room. Is it possible that thousands upon thousands were fed, thousands were healed, is it possible that all those people fell away? I don't know. But where were they? When it gets to Acts chapter 1, only 120 people are numbered with the Lord. 22. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. He too goes down on his knees in the presence of the Lord. Just picture this, if you will. This man, Jairus, is a leader from the local synagogue, and he's now on his knees in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's submission, that's humility. He's in great distress. His daughter's sick at the point of death, and he's pleading with the Lord to heal his daughter. 24. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. There's that press again, that crowd wanting to be part of the action. 25. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. He's just dealt with a devil-possessed man. He's on his way to deal with a dying 12-year-old girl, and this woman who's been suffering with an issue of blood for 12 years steps in, hoping to be healed by him. And she says in verse 28, If I may touch but his clothes, 
I shall be whole. It wasn't his clothes. It was Jesus Christ himself that healed people. But she was desperate. And she's going to literally reach out to him like a beggar in anticipation of being healed. Look at 29. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Her faith saved her, of course. But in her mind, she was healed by touching his clothing. 30. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? He wants her to come forward and explain herself to him. This is very similar to the Lord back in Genesis, coming in search for Adam and Eve. And here the Lord wants her to come forward and explain herself to him. He also wants to draw her out of the crowd to give God the glory for yet another miracle. 31. And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? Once again, they don't quite understand the enormity or even the simplicity of what is occurring here. And yet, it's a fair question. There's a great crowd around you, Lord, thronging you, and you're asking which one of these people has touched you. But they don't realize that she's been healed by approaching him. Many times the apostles were one or two steps behind the Lord when it came to what was going on in his ministry. 32. And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. That's all he wanted. Just come out of the crowd and declare what has happened to you. Give God the glory. 34. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. That term daughter once again underscores the Lord's sovereignty, the everlasting father from Isaiah chapter 9. And he says, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be whole of your plague. Justification in the sight of God, Romans chapter 4. Justification in the sight of men, James chapter 2. Her faith on this occasion allowed her to be healed of her disease, of her plague. 35. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Master again means rabbi. And they're saying she's dead now. Don't bother him anymore. He's a busy man. 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. Don't doubt, don't fear, don't panic, just believe. 37. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James, and John, the brother of James. There's his inner three once again. Peter, James, and John. And they're going to see a great miracle here. 38. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the Talmud, and them that wept and wailed greatly. Why are they wailing greatly? Why are they weeping or crying? This crowd are supposed to be faithful Jews, Abraham's children. And here they are, behaving like unsaved heathen. 39. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel's not dead, but sleepeth. And she was. She would have been in Abraham's bosom. She would have died in the Lord. She didn't go to hell. He's saying, Why are you making this commotion? The damsel, the young girl, is not dead. She's not perished. But she's sleeping. She's in Abraham's bosom. Luke 16. Look at verse 40. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. He takes a mother and the father, Peter, James, and John, into where the young girl was lying, and at this point in time has just died. 41. And he took the damsel by the hand, 
and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is, being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, Arise, little girl, I command you to arise, little girl, I'm going to give you everlasting life, little girl, I'm going to resurrect you. And that term, Talitha kumi, is Aramaic. 42. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. You can just imagine the shock and the relief and the joy that her parents felt. And this term, twelve years, is now the second time it has appeared in Mark chapter 5. And I believe that the maniac had been devil-possessed for twelve years. The lady that was healed had been suffering for twelve years. And this girl was 12 years of age and they were astonished her parents with a great astonishment and no doubt Peter James and John would have been astonished as well and if you were to add up the three twelves you would get 36 maybe the man who was possessed with 6,000 spirits 6,000 devils 6,000 demons maybe he was 36 years of age I don't know look at 43 and he charged him straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. How her parents were going to keep this from the multitude outside, I don't know. But he says, don't tell anybody what's happened. Give her something to eat. Physical food, and perhaps spiritual food as well. So chapter 5, you saw the man in the tombs cutting himself, which initially appeared to have just one unclean spirit, but upon a further examination of the Lord Jesus Christ, it transpired he had 6,000 spirits in him and he was very strong he was able to break the chains and fetters that had been put on him he was no doubt like a wild beast nobody could tame him he was very much a menace in the local community people must have been terrified of him and day and night he was in the mountains and tombs crying and cutting himself a man in great distress and this is a problem you turn from the lord god of the bible to satan this is why it's so important never to get involved with spiritualism, Ouija boards, tarot cards, the occult in general. Because once you open up yourself to these spirits, these spirits will latch on to you. And the vast majority of people die as they lived, lost. And if you ever listen to some of these clairvoyants making contact with dead relatives and they say, your mother's telling me this or your father's telling me this or your uncle's telling me this, or your auntie's telling me this. It's not your late relatives that are communicating with you. It's the unclean spirits that have been part of your late mother's life, or your late father's life, or your late aunt's life, or your late uncle's life. Those unclean spirits had spent many years being inside of you. And that's why this man, I think, was possessed for 12 years. And if he was 36 years of age, by the time the Lord reached him and set him free... Do the mathematics for yourself. Work out when this wickedness, when this sin came upon him. If he was 26 years of age, when he was initially indwelt by these unclean spirits, what was the sin that resulted in him being infested by 6,000 devils? And I'll tell you something. This probably happened over a period of time. I'm not sure he woke up one day with just one unclean spirit in him. He would have been heavily involved with sin, and sin begets sin. And after a while, the unclean spirits are doubling, quadrupling, until the stage that this man has got 6,000 devils in him. So from the age of 24 to 36, he's now completely overtaken by unclean spirits. 
and nobody else could heal him or help him or assist him. It took the Lord God of the Bible to take personal command. And Jesus said one more time, okay, all of you unclean spirits can leave the man and go into 2,000 pigs. And those pigs ran down a steep place into the sea and were choked. And he says, that man is worth $200,000 to me, 125,000 pounds. That's what salvation means to me. That's what the value of man is worth to me. And it's also possible that this man, which according to Dr. Luke's account was naked, may have been also involved with some sexual sin. We are told from, I think it's Luke's accounts or Matthew's accounts, how there were two devil-possessed men. Maybe these two in some kind of sexual relationship we're not sure to be naked in the open is unnatural, like I say. But by verse 20, this man has been healed. And the Lord says, go back to your friends and family and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. And all men did marvel. What a great account of salvation and deliverance and a great testimony. But not stopping there, we find this young girl, this young damsel, the daughter of Jairus, who's dying. And Jairus runs to the Lord, gets down in his knees in front of everybody, all of his peers and friends and associates, and says, Lord, please, quickly come with me. My daughter's at the point of death. And you can imagine some of the scribes and Pharisees, absolutely incredulous, how one of their own has gone to the travelling Messiah to help his daughter. They couldn't do it. The Pharisees and the scribes couldn't help his daughter. It took Jesus Christ. And yet, en route to reach this young girl, this woman comes out of nowhere, and she too has been struggling with an illness for 12 years and she touches the Lord's clothing and she's healed straight away. Again, no comeback tomorrow, no comeback next week, no comeback next month. She touches him. Her faith, of course, is what healed her, not the Lord's clothing per se. Her faith in him healed her. And she touches him and virtue goes out from him. Power. And she feels, she knows that she's been restored. She's been healed from within. And like I said, that demonstrates justification in the sight of God. Romans 4 versus justification in the sight of man. James chapter 2. 31, his disciples are oblivious as to what has occurred. As far as they are concerned, they've just left one devil-possessed man en route to a young damsel. And also from chapter 6, we will find another damsel, but this time from a different family altogether and very much in the wrong path. The Lord Jesus Christ turns around, calls this woman out of the crowd, calls her daughter. And she too could have been the same age as the Lord, but because he's the everlasting father, because he has this great authority, because he is the God-man, he says, thy faith hath made thee whole. The just shall live by faith. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Nothing in this piece of scripture to suggest any sin on her part was the result of her being sick. But he commends her faith and off she goes healed of that plague and rejoicing no doubt but by this point of time this young girl has died and the associates of Jairus say thy daughter is dead why troublest thou the master any further don't trouble the rabbi she's dead and the Lord says no don't panic don't fall apart now only believe all things are possible to those that believe and he takes Peter and James and John in to the young girl's house his inner three, those that probably loved him the most as well. And yet, before he gets into the little girl's room, there's a crowd outside, weeping and wailing and making a great commotion. 
almost behaving like ignorant heathen. And they laugh him to scorn when he says to them, she's not dead, but she's sleeping. She's in Abraham's bosom. But again, he doesn't entertain their ignorance. He perseveres on and takes the parents and Peter, James and John into the room of the young damsel. And he takes her by the hand and says unto her, 41, Talitha Kumi, Aramaic, which is being interpreted damsel, little girl or little child. I say unto thee, arise. That's power. And 42, and straightway, immediately, the damsel, the little girl, arose and walked. For she was of the age of 12 years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And I'll say this one final time. I believe that the man in the tombs had been possessed for 12 years. That would have occurred when he was 24. And by the age of 36, he was set free. This poor woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. And this young girl was 12 years of age. Three twelves make 36. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them. He ordered them straightly, directly, straight away, that no man should know it. Don't go outside, he's telling them. They've just laughed me to scorn. And it's that group outside that the Lord Jesus Christ would have spoken to in parables. They had eyes to see, but couldn't see. They had ears to hear, but could not hear. And he goes on to tell the parents to give us something to eat, physical and spiritual food. So 43 verses conclude Mark chapter 5, an incredible piece of scripture. And as always, a very fast-moving piece of scripture. The Lord's ministry was rarely the same. Two days for the Lord were rarely the same. And like I say, this piece of scripture will close with one damsel being set free to another damsel, very much in the bonds of iniquity, depravity, and decadence. But next up, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And he went out from thence, and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him, Wherever the Lord Jesus Christ was, for the most part, his faithful group of disciples were never far off. And this interests me because it demonstrates very clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ, upon his death, didn't have just one person to continue on in his ministry, if you will. He chose 12 men to continue on in his ministry, excluding Judas Iscariot, of course, who betrayed him. And this was done, I think, to demonstrate the probability that one person might come along and say how he was the Lord's number one apostle or disciple or his successor, if you will. And to stop that from occurring, the Lord Jesus Christ, like I say, chose 12 men, excluding Judas Iscariot. Post his death, a group called the Gnostics came along and they claimed to have additional truth outside of the New Testament, which of course is impossible. Truth is found in Jesus Christ, and truth is found in the Word of God. And also I'll say this, this demonstrates to me very clearly how no one man has all of the truth. That's why the Lord chose 12 men minus Judas Iscariot. And I believe Paul, in a spiritual sense, replaced Judas Iscariot to make 12 apostles. But more on that on another occasion. Look at verse 2. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? You have to remember one thing, that these people knew the Lord Jesus Christ as a young child. He's come of age literally overnight, and it's always the hardest thing when it comes to preaching to friends and family who knew you, 
before you were saved. 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. That term, son of Mary, is quoted by Muslims on so many occasions, and it's only found once in the New Testament, the son of Mary. He's called the son of God over 40 times, and he's called the son of man over 80 times. And yes, quite rightly, they say, is this not the brother of James and Joseus, abbreviation for Joseph and Judah, who I believe wrote the epistle of Jude, and Judah, or Jude, or Judas, was also, according to Dr. Luke, one of the Lord's apostles. So three brothers there, James, Joseus, an abbreviation, like I say, for Joseph, Judah, Simon, and are not his sisters, plural, here with us. So three brothers, including Jesus, would make four sons, and at least two daughters would make four children. But I think he had at least three sisters, so seven children, which were born to Mary and Joseph, post the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say how they were offended at him, like John the Baptist was, who was a distant cousin of the Lord. And this group of people from Nazareth or Capernaum would have known the Lord's mother, stepfather, brothers and sisters quite well. And like I say, it's always the hardest thing when it comes to witnessing to your own friends and family. Look at verse 4. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honour, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. He even affirms that he is a prophet. He's the prophet which Moses spoke about from Deuteronomy chapter 18. But because of their unbelief in him, look at verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. They wouldn't come to him to be healed, you see. They were offended by him. They were embarrassed by him. So they wouldn't come forward to be healed by him. Possibly because of the hostility from the Pharisees and scribes, but more likely down to the fact that they were offended by the fact that many of them had grown up with the Lord and his half-brothers and sisters, and they just couldn't perceive how he could be the Messiah of Israel. Look at verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villagers teaching. That term villagers demonstrates the close-knit community that the Lord Jesus Christ would have grown up in. But he marvelled. He was infuriated. He was probably wounded above everything that he couldn't heal people from his own community. And that's a bitter pill to swallow when it comes to our own failures. When we try to witness to our own friends and family And they just will not hear us. Like I say, it's always the hardest thing to do when it comes to witnessing to your own friends and family. It's easy for someone else to do it. But when it falls to you to do it, for the most part, it's so very difficult. And it was no different for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. And he called unto him, the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. Go as you are, he says. You can have power over unclean spirits. And this goes back to the kingdom of heaven, which was a physical kingdom. And the Jewish apostles are once again empowered to perform miracles, healings on unsaved people. And yet they never healed themselves. Paul couldn't heal himself. Timothy couldn't heal himself. 
And also from verse 8, they are told to take nothing for their journey except a staff, which would be a stick. And that stick wasn't to use in self-defense. And if anybody can find anywhere in Scripture where the apostles ever used any weapon to attack their enemies, I will send you a jar of my favorite pasta sauce. This stick was probably used to keep wild animals at bay. And he says, take nothing for your journey, no scrip, no bread, no money in your purse, literally no wallet, no purse, no money, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. Why? He wants them to go out by faith. And I've heard people quote these verses to somehow justify the one man paid pastor. That's impossible. This is in reference to two groups of people going out, but more specifically in reference to two groups of apostles going out, not necessarily to preach the gospel of salvation to the world, but more specifically to preach the kingdom of heaven to the children of Israel, and along the way to cast out spirits and to anoint those that needed to be anointed with oil. It's a very mixed ministry to what you would find today, but ultimately he wants them to go out by faith, trusting in him to look over them and to provide for them. Look at verse 10. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. There's a picture of hell, and we know that there are different levels of hell. There's different levels of punishment in hell. And because these Jewish apostles were sent out by the Jewish Messiah, the accountability from those people that would come into contact with the Jewish apostles was much higher than those people living in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. 12. And they went out and preached that men should repent. Repentance, like I say, is a change of mind. And I'm critical of easy believism, and I'm also critical of lordship salvation. Some people would have you believe that you have to turn from all of your sins in order to be saved, which, of course, is impossible, because you were born in sin. And the word of God says how we all fall short of the glory of God. And even after we are saved we still fall short of the glory of God. That's why salvation is a gift, and that's why salvation is eternal. Salvation is a free gift from God. He saves us to the uttermost, and he keeps us saved to the uttermost. But yes, you can fall inboard, but you can't fall overboard, and yes, you can lose your testimony, and a worst-case scenario would be for someone to lose their testimony in every possible way which would result in arriving at the judgment seat of Christ which is just for the Christian and discover there are no rewards for them and on top of that they have lost their place in the millennial inheritance but it says here in verse 12 how they went out all 12 of the apostles and preached that men should repent and no doubt you could harmonize that with the gospel today calling men to repent but keep in mind what I've shown you from verse 7, how they had power over unclean spirits. And on top of that, verse 8, they went out by faith, which is not something you would find anywhere today. 13, and they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. 
There's that term again, devils, in reference to 13. Friday the 13th, 13 is very important in the occult. And yes, I know that for the most part that is superstition. But for those that are in the occult, they like the number 13. 13 is synonymous with wickedness, evil. And here devils are found in verse 13. Please remember this one more time, that devils are plural. There are many devils, but there's only one devil being Satan, slash Lucifer, slash Baal, slash Beelzebub, so on and so forth. And I'll say this also, I don't believe that Bible-believing Christians living today have the same authority that the apostles had. An apostle was somebody that saw the Lord Jesus Christ, and an apostle was somebody that was sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no apostles today. There are disciples, but not apostles. And yet saying that, I must say this to avoid any confusion, that the apostles did ordain disciples to assist them in the ministry. But like I said last time, if you go back to the book of Acts, and if you read it carefully, you will discover that such a book is a transitional account from law to grace, from Israel to the church. The best place to go, if you are born again, to understand what the will of God is for your life today, would be to examine the epistles. So the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 6 demonstrate once again the fast pace of the Lord's ministry. His own family reject him, but as always he continues on in his ministry. He completely discards their unbelief, although it offended him, he was grieved, he marveled in verse 6. But nevertheless he pushes on and he sends his twelve apostles out to the people of Israel, the children of Israel. And please remember this, that Judas Iscariot was sent out with the twelve. Judas Iscariot also had the Jewish apostolic sign gifts, and yet he still betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. He died in his sin and went to his place, according to Acts chapter 1. But look at verse 14, please. And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad. And he said, that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. King Herod came a long line of tyrant leaders. He was a descendant from Esau, which, if you go back to the Old Testament, was involved with Ishmael, which, if you take Islamic tradition, and I say, if you do, with a pinch of salt, you will understand that Esau slash Ishmael was a descendant of Muhammad. Now, I question that, but they believe that nevertheless. So therefore, when we look at the man King Herod, not only is he a tyrant, not only is he in the wrong bloodline because he comes from Esau, not Isaac, but he was very much a thorn in the side of Israel. He was appointed by Pilate, and although he had great power, Pilate was his ultimate boss, if you will. The ultimate authority in Israel was Pilate, and yet Herod was imposed on the people of Israel. Technically, therefore, Herod was the king of the Jews, and the Jews would have despised him for that. And yet King Herod was a very skillful politician. He was able to work with the Jewish leaders, and he was also able to work with the Roman leaders. On top of that, he was a very powerful man, a very wicked and evil man. But I'll say this, that if you take the Islamic account, that Muhammad was a descendant of Ishmael, who interlinked with Esau, and the word of God says how God hated Esau but loved Jacob. If you take these verses together, if you take Islamic tradition with a pinch of salt, and I would suggest you do, then what you discover very simply is how Herod, first of all, 
is in the wrong line, and secondly, how he is a type of the Antichrist, despised by the Jews and yet was able to be used by Rome. And he goes on to say that the fame of the Lord gave the impression in the mind of Herod, who was an unsaved, superstitious pagan, that perhaps John the Baptist had been raised from the dead and was doing great miracles through the person of Jesus Christ. Talk about confusion. Talk about a mess. But this is the problem when you approach the Bible as an unsaved person with your own presuppositions. Look at verse 15. Others said that it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet, or as one of the prophets. No one really knew, or nobody really wanted to know, exactly who the Lord Jesus Christ was. What do they say? Ignorance is bliss, and that's very true. And what do they also say? You get the governments that you deserve. Hence why the apostate children of Israel suffered so terribly under Herod and Pilate. Verse 16 but when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. Herod could also have foolishly believed in reincarnation, and perhaps somehow thought that Jesus Christ was a reincarnation of John the Baptist. It underscores the folly. It underscores the ignorance. It also underscores just how depraved Herod was. And on top of that, it demonstrates the tragic reality that John the Baptist had been detained by Herod. John the Baptist had preached to Herod and John the Baptist, the greatest man that ever lived, according to the Lord, pre the death of the Lord's ministry. Even John the Baptist, this great man, like I say, was unable to convert King Herod. John the Baptist was unable to bring Herod to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in some ways that should give us a sense of relief, if you will, when it comes to our own failures, when we try to win unsaved friends and family to the Lord. So although we have failed in the sense of reconciling men and women to the Lord, so too had John the Baptist. And I'll say this also as a further footnote. The Lord Jesus Christ stood in the presence of Pilate and spoke to Pilate and couldn't bring Pilate to faith in him and the Lord Jesus Christ also stood in the presence of Herod and he too could not bring Herod to faith in himself so don't be too hard on yourself if you are failing to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ John the Baptist as I say was unable to bring Herod to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ was also unable to bring people to faith in him as well Go back to the book of Acts, read it. The Apostle Paul, probably the greatest man that ever lived post the crucifixion, was also unable to bring royalty that he spoke to on many occasions to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, we know that these people were under a divine curse, we understand that. But my point is quite simply that even the greatest of the greats were unable to bring men and women, in large numbers anyway, to faith in the one true God. But let's move on, please. Verse 17. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Incest has always been a problem, and John the Baptist was a faithful street preacher who thought nothing of calling to repent. And yet, I'll say this, 
the word of God tells you to pray for those that are in authority. Sometimes it's very easy to criticize those that are in authority, but it's a lot harder to pray for those people, and it's also a lot harder to call on others to join you when you pray for those in authority. 18. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. It's interesting that John quotes the Old Testament, as he would do, of course, he's a Jew, you understand. But Herod technically was a Jew, but Herod was primarily of the Gentile stock. That may sound like a contradictory statement. It actually isn't, because Herod's family had intermarried with so many different groups of people that he probably didn't know himself who he was. Technically, he was a Jew, hence why John rebukes him using the Old Testament. But in reality, he was a Gentile. So it's a fascinating piece of scripture to discover how John the Baptist, as a Jewish prophet, would call on Herod as a Jew-slash-Gentile individual to repent for marrying his brother's wife. 19. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him, and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. It's a strange piece of scripture. You have to ask yourself, why would Herod enjoy listening to John the Baptist preach? Maybe John preached against Rome at times, and Herod liked it. Maybe there's a side to Herod which appreciated some of the godly things that came out of the mouth of John. But I think there's a sense of a sadistic streak in the life of King Herod. Herod, no doubt, was a very complex man, and yet he feared John, and he knew that John was a just and holy man. And for the most part, if you are a godly person, society will treat you well for the most part. It's when you become disruptive, it's when you become argumentative, it's when you become a thorn in the side of the state that the state normally turns against you. And it says in the latter parts of verse 20, And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Like I say, it's a very bizarre piece of scripture. And I can even go back to what I've just said, that Herod was a very complex character. And he got some kind of sadistic kick and thrill out of seeing John detained. And yet at the same time, he couldn't deny the fact that John was a just man and a holy man. And on top of that, it demonstrates that John the Baptist was fearless. He knew that he probably wasn't going to be released from prison. And if I know John, he probably preached right up until he died. Look at verse 21, please. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in, and danced, and pleased Herod, and then that sat with him... The king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. Here's a second damsel. I showed you from chapter 5 how Jairus' daughter, who was born to a godly family, was resurrected at the age of 12 years of age. And here is the second damsel. Probably between 12 to 18, damsel normally was used in reference to a girl who wasn't married, who was under the age of 18 years of age. She is a stepdaughter, and this dance is a very provocative dance. This dance would be a equivalent to a modern striptease, if you will. And it's quite shameful how Herod 
was no doubt encouraging her to dance for him and his colleagues and lords and high captains, so on and so forth. And of course it would have aroused Herod. Herod was a very despicable man. And I'll say this, this is probably the first indirect reference to paedophilia in the New Testament. More on that later. But he says to the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. So not only is he lusting for this young girl, he's now promising to give her whatever she wants from him. Look at 23. And he swear unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee, unto the half of my kingdom. It wasn't even his kingdom, technically speaking. His kingdom was limited. His rule and authority was severely curtailed and controlled and governed via Pilate. But because he is the so-called king of the Jews, and he had an army, of course, he had a palace, and because he has the lords and high captains and chief estates of Galilee sitting with him along with his servants and his wife and possibly other female concubines, maybe, he cannot lose face in the presence of Herodias's daughter, who, according to tradition, was called Salome, 24. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. What a despicable woman Herodias was. She's now planning with her young daughter the death of John the Baptist. And this corruption is found very clearly back in the book of Genesis concerning Lot and his daughters. But this family were weighed down with sin, with decadence, with depravity, with debauchery. And this young damsel had never known anything else. Her mother was wicked. Her own father, Philip, was wicked. And now her uncle slash stepfather is lusting after her. And what's to say down the line he didn't get her? What's to say down the line he didn't seduce her? What's to say down the line he didn't corrupt her and defile her? 25. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king, and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger, the head of John the Baptist. That term by and by means straight away without delay. In a charger, meaning on a dish, the head of John the Baptist. She wants him to be decapitated, which you find is very popular among Muslims at this present point in time. And during the Great Tribulation, the saints of the Lord are going to be decapitated by the Antichrist. 26. And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake, and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. How could he? He's promised to give her unto half of his kingdom, and she's played him at his own game by saying, give me the head of John the Baptist on a plate right now. He couldn't refuse it. He would have been laughed at. He would have lost face in the presence of those sitting around him. But it says he was sorry because he feared John. He knew that John was a good man and yet he is desperate to win the heart, if you will, of this young damsel. 27. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. What a wicked couple. Mother like daughter, daughter like mother, wickedness. This innocent man, John the Baptist, has now been murdered by an executioner 
for the sake of an oath, which was promised to a young damsel. It rarely gets any worse than this. 29. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Where possible, you should always bury a saved loved one. Cremation was something that was rarely used in the Old Testament, and cremations were normally carried out by unsaved heathen. But here, John's disciples have been told of his martyrdom, and they've come probably straight away to take what was left of his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Look at verse 30, please. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. They were oblivious to what has just happened to John. They'd been on a great teaching circuit, healing circuit, and no doubt they would have seen people come to faith in the Jewish Messiah. And also please remember that for some of the Lord's 12 apostles, they go back right to the beginning of not only the Lord's ministry, but John's ministry. Andrew was a disciple of John, and quite possibly so too was Peter. So news of John's martyrdom would have been of great distress to Andrew and Peter and others too. 31. And he said unto them, Come yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. He's saying it's time to have a break now. Let's take a few moments out and recharge our batteries. And yet, that break never came. That vacation never came. This was a working vacation, as they say, a working holiday. But even that doesn't really do justice to the fact that these men worked day and night with the Lord Jesus Christ. 32. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. The intention was there to escape for a break, like I say, to recharge their batteries, and also for the Lord to perhaps break the news that John had just been martyred. But look at 33. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. Jesus and his apostles couldn't do a thing without the people knowing in advance. 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. As always, he's putting others first. He wanted to spend time with his apostles to comfort them over the death of John. And he wanted to build them up again. And he wanted to give them a chance to re-energize themselves. But it wasn't possible because the people had literally run ahead of the Lord and his party. And it says here, they were a sheep not having a shepherd. The word of God says that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, which, in my opinion, simply means in reference to those that have appropriated the atonement. Until you are born again, you are a goat. You are a tear. But the moment you are born again, you are a sheep, and you are part of the Lord's wheat. And it says in 34, And he began to teach them many things. What a great piece of scripture. The Lord wanted to spend some time with his disciples, and yet he saw that the need of the common man and woman was greater than spending time with his own people. So he teaches them many things.
35. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country round about, and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. That's true. They had nothing to eat, and the day was far past. And that's true that the apostles were no doubt sincerely thinking of the welfare of this large group of people. And yet it also demonstrates to me once again how the apostles were two or three steps behind the Lord's ministry. They weren't always in sync with the mind of the Lord. 37. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? Pennies, English money, two hundred pennies would be two pounds in English money. And again, they are thinking in the sense of literally going out to purchase food. It's like the woman at the well back in John 4. She thought the Lord was speaking about literal water. And here the apostles are thinking in a literal sense, not in a spiritual sense. 38. He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say five and two fishes. He's continuing on with this almost sense of a parable. He wants to see how far he can push the apostles before they realize that he's speaking to them in a spiritual sense. Look at verse 39. And he commanded them to make or sit down by companies upon the green grass. Companies, it's a military term. We've seen Captain Jesus on the ship. Now we're seeing perhaps General Jesus when it comes to feeding what's going to be the greatest miracle so far in the New Testament, the feeding of the 5,000. Look at verse 40. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. Ranks, general, brigadier, colonel, companies. What company are you in? This is very much military language if you will. And the word of God speaks about Jesus Christ being the commander of the Lord. 41. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. It's a great thing to enjoy a meal and feel filled up to the brim, as they say, after you have finished your meal. And yet, how many people around the world go to bed every night hungry? Half of the world is starving, and yet, in the West, we have a problem of obesity. And from 41, he looks up to heaven, Jesus Christ, and blesses and breaks the loaves and gives to his disciples to set before them. There's a picture of humility. Here the Lord's apostles are almost acting like waiters. They are sent out from the king of the universe, the literal bread of heaven, John chapter 6, and they are feeding their own people literal food. Yet another miracle has just occurred right under their eyes. It must have shocked them enormously. 43. And they took up twelve baskets, four of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men, including women and children. You're looking at about 20,000 people. And I challenge anyone to go back to antiquity, to go back to the ancient world, or go back to 100 years ago, and find anyone else that came anywhere near the man, Jesus Christ. Who else in the history of the world fed 
20,000 people. Please tell me if you know. I can't find anyone who even fed 20 people, let alone 20,000. In fact, if you go back to the Quran, there aren't any miracles in there. And yet, to be a true prophet, based on any religion, you need miracles. Yet, Muhammad never did a miracle a day in his life. Look at verse 45, please. And straightway, he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. It's time to go now, he's saying. I've just fed 20,000 people. And as always, he's thinking of the welfare of his apostles. And yet, on top of that, he's about to perform yet another miracle, which the apostles were totally oblivious of. 46. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Jesus Christ was a great man of prayer. And like I say, my desire for this year is to increase my prayer life threefold. Because you can never pray enough. If the God-man prayed day and night, and he did... His people should be praying day and night as well. And you can pray where you stand. You don't have to go into a room to pray. You don't have to go into a church to pray. You can pray where you stand. And at the same time, live a busy and active life. 47. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea. And he alone on the land. Now he knows what's going on. Please understand this. He has carefully orchestrated this. And yet the apostles, bless their hearts for the most part, were completely oblivious as to what was about to occur. 48. And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. The fourth watch of the night is around three o'clock in the morning. And please remember that these are professional fishermen. They know Galilee and Capernaum like the back of their hand. And yet... This wind has come out of nowhere. This storm has arrived from nowhere. And like I said last time, this miracle demonstrates that Jesus Christ is Lord over the sea. He's Lord over nature. He's Lord over Satan. 49. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them. And saith unto them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. When you're panicking, that's what you want to hear. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. When you're in a meltdown, you want someone to come next to you and say, Please don't worry. Please be calm. The Lord is at hand. 51. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were so amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. That's why he did this great miracle. That's why he walked on the water. Not just to rebuke them, but to demonstrate his deity, to draw them closer to him. And it says here, for their heart, singular, was hardened. A corporate condemnation. How all of the apostles were guilty of hardening their hearts. And I'll say this, please give me one example of anybody from any generation that walked on the water. And we know from elsewhere in scripture how the Lord Jesus Christ walked on the sea for three and a half miles before he reached his apostles 
Who else could or has done such a thing? To walk on the water demonstrates Jesus Christ is deity, obviously. It demonstrates he's Lord of nature and it demonstrates that he's Lord of Satan. 53. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship, straightway they knew him and ran through that whole region round about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard he was. He just got off a boat. He just departed from a ship. He's just fed 20,000 people. And as always, he has almost no time for himself. 56. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they led the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch, if it were, but the border of his garments. And as many as touched him are made whole. Faith alone to be healed of their sickness and faith alone to be healed of their sin. The just shall live by faith. One group of people from Mark 6, 6 turn from him, refuse to come to him to be healed, so he turns to another group of people. And this time they bring their sick into the streets and he heals all of those without exception because he had compassion on the people. He was a people's person. He was a Jewish Messiah of Israel, of course. So 56 verses, a rather long chapter, and we've covered much ground. But for me, the main theme from Mark chapter 6 is this young damsel who was corrupted by her mother, her father, and her stepfather. And I believe that this is the first indirect account of paedophilia in the New Testament. And I'll give you some more scriptures as we go through the next few studies as to what the Lord Jesus Christ truly feels about paedophiles, the lowest of the low. And I'll just show you from chapter 6, verse 13, how devils were found in verse 13. Number 13 being synonymous with Satan, with wickedness in every possible way. And on top of that, the apostles are still struggling to perceive the enormity as to who exactly the Lord Jesus Christ was. Hence why he feeds the 5,000 right under their nose, walks on the water, would have gone beyond them, but as always, he's a gentleman, and as always, he's waiting for them to reach out to him. And they thought, in verse 49, that he was a spirit, like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. But he says also in the latter parts of John's Gospel and also Luke's Gospel, Touch me not, for a spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see me have. And in verse 50 it says how they were troubled, they were terrified, they were petrified, and yet they were secretly relieved when they realised it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Wonderful. And straight away, 50, when he climbs up into the ship and the wind ceased. Yet another miracle... And they were so amazed in themselves beyond measure, as you would imagine they would be, and wondered. Elsewhere they said, what sort of man is this? Who is this man that controls the wind and the sea, the elements? And of course, I put it to you one more time, that he is deity, he's God Almighty, and he's doing these things to reinforce their faith in him. He wants them to trust in him. He wants them to stop worrying and stop arguing and 52 says, 
for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, the 5,000. Why? For their heart was hardened. But as always, he moves on from that. He arrives at Gennesaret, and multitudes are waiting him. And it says, wherever he entered into villages, cities, or country, they laid the sick in the streets. The religious leaders couldn't do it. Herod couldn't do it. Pilate couldn't do it. And I'll tell you this, the popes of Rome, to this present day, cannot heal people of physical sickness or devil possession. But Jesus could, and so too could his apostles. So there you are, 56 verses, like I say, a slightly longer study than I'd anticipated, but it's all good, and uh, I pray the Lord will bless this message. And next up, Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Then came together unto him the Pharisees, and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. Once again, the religious elite can't stay away from the Lord Jesus Christ. He was like a magnet to them. Wherever he went, they were never far away, sniping, criticizing, and seeking to undermine his authority. And yet, he was able to take their words and not only use them against them, but allow the common man and woman in the street to see the hypocrisy of those in organized religion. And on top of that, he wanted his own disciples to see just how wicked these church fathers were. Verse 2. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashing hands, they found fault. See, for this group of people, they were very interested in what you did externally. Did you dress properly? Did you speak properly? And did you associate with the right kind of people? And as always, they want to find fault in you. 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, hold in the tradition of the elders. No doubt this tradition came from Babylon, and this was yet another reason why the vast majority of the Jewish leaders and people missed the clear simplicity and teachings and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 4. And when they come from the markets, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brass and vessels, and of tables. More organized religion has crept in and defiled the word of God. It was endemic during the Lord's day, it's endemic today. Organized religion teaches you must be saved by your faith and works. But the scripture says you are saved by your faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? You see, he was very much exposing their hypocrisy. The Lord Jesus Christ was very good at doing things his own way. And the Pharisees and scribes could see the Lord and his disciples gathering a larger group of people day by day. And he wasn't doing what they were doing. He was preaching the word of God to them from the heart. And they could see it. And of course, if this continued, they would be exposed as charlatans, hypocrites. And yet at the same time, they are intrigued as to why he doesn't follow the tradition of the elders. Not going back to Moses, of course, but going back to Babylon. 
6. He answered, and said unto them, Well hath Esaias prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that was the main problem time after time, how the prophets had seen back during their time on the earth what was about to occur during the Lord's time on the earth. This people honoureth me with their lips, lip service we call it today, but their heart is far from me. The heart of man is desperately wicked, who can know it? 7. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You can worship God in vain, and on top of that, teach the doctrines of men. You can have an entire religious system which is built on the traditions of men. What does the word of God say? There is a way which seems right unto man, but the ends thereof, the ways thereof, are of death. In other words, you can think that you're right, but the ends result in eternal death. Hence why it's so important to study the scriptures, to make sure that what you believe is correct, and that it honours God. It's not in vain. 8. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as a washing of pots and cups, and many other such things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. The Catholic Church does this. The Church of England does this. The Jehovah's Witnesses do this, along with the Mormons. They have a dual authority. The Catholic Church has the Bible in one hand and tradition in the other hand. And when the two clash, and they always do, the Catholic Church goes with tradition. The Jehovah's Witnesses have the so-called Bible, the New World Translation in one hand, and in the other hand, the Watchtower. And when the two clash, as they always do, they go with the Watchtower. The Mormons have their Bible, and yet they have the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, and the Book of Abraham. And when the Book of Mormon says one thing, and the Bible says another, they go with the Book of Mormon. The same is true of the Church of England. They claim to be a Christian institution, and yet their tradition, time in, time out, outweighs the Word of God. The Church of England have abandoned the Word of God in light of tradition. And just last week, they ordained their first female bishop, an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. But they couldn't care less because they follow the tradition of men, not the tradition of God, not the commandments of God, not the written word of God. 10. For Moses said, Honour thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift. By whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. In other words, if they promise to do something to the Lord, they are now relinquished from fulfilling the word of God. And this is how easy it is to fall from grace and end up in heresy. 12. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect for your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such things do ye. And once again, 13 demonstrates sin, apostasy, but on this occasion in reference to false tradition, nullifying the word of God. Look at 14. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, 
Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man, that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. Yes, that's true. And yet, I'll say this, if you were to put drugs inside of you, if you were to put alcohol inside of you, if you were to smoke, you would clearly be defiling yourself. What is he really saying here? He's speaking about the unsaved man, the unregenerated heart. He's speaking about mankind in general, pre-the new birth. And he's also trying to push on, he's trying to move them on from this external self-righteousness to what happens inside. Our righteousness, according to Isaiah 64, is as filthiness in the presence of the Lord. 16. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. There's that clear teaching once again. If you can receive it, receive it. If you belong to me, you shall receive it. And if you don't belong to me, you will never receive it. 17. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. And that's a point one more time. It's not what you eat which defiles you in the presence of the Lord. In other words, it's not what you eat which makes you a sinner. It's who you are that makes you as a sinner. It's your heart. It's your nature. It's original sin that condemns you. Look at 20. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. And if I was to pick just one word out from verse 21, I would go for fornications. That term in Greek is pornia. And that's where we get the word pornography from. And pornia means every sexual sin imaginable. And he says just the thought of doing it is evil. Never mind doing it. Just think it and you've done it. In Matthew 5 he says if you lust after a woman or after a man, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart. Just think it and you've done it. And that is what defiles the man. The thoughts from within the heart. Not what you eat, but what you think. 24. And from thence he arose, and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon, and entered into an house, and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman, whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. She's the first Gentile woman to find the Lord Jesus Christ and she's desperate for him to cast out a devil from her daughter. Not the devil, Satan, but a devil. And perhaps she too was a damsel. Perhaps she too was of the same age as Jairus' daughter. And this demonstrates to me the awful reality how children can be possessed by unclean spirits. 27. 
But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread, and to cast it unto the dogs. Gentiles were called dogs by the Jews, and a literal dog in the eyes of a Jew was an unclean animal. Even today, Jews consider dogs to be unclean animals. And some people think this language is slightly harsh from the Lord Jesus Christ. But 24 told us how he wanted no man to know where he was, but could not be hid. Even he wanted time to himself every so often. And yet this woman, this South Phoenician, has persevered. She's found him. She's fallen at his feet in desperation. And yet she says the following to him, pointing to her humility and submission in 28. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. She accepts that the Gentiles are inferior to the Jews. And she accepts as a Gentile that the crumbs are going to fall from the children's table. And the dogs are going to eat them up. It's almost a picture of the rich man in hell and the beggar outside his house. Luke chapter 16 Look at verse 27 one more time. Let the children first be filled in reference to the people of Israel. See, at this point in the Lord's ministry, he's only coming for the people of Israel. But after his death on the cross, and we know from Ephesians chapter 2 how the middle wall or partition would be knocked down forever. Jew and Gentile would be incorporated into the body of Christ. But for here and now, let the children first be filled. For it is not meat. It is not right to take the children's bread away from the people of Israel and to cast it unto the dogs in reference to the Gentiles. And most people would be easily offended by this type of language. But she says, okay, Lord, let the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And it was that humility, it was that submission to him that resulted in her prayer being answered. Look at 29. And he said unto her, for this saying, go thy way. The devil has gone out of thy daughter. Not Satan, as I say, but one of his minions. The devil, the demon, the unclean spirit has gone out of your daughter. Just by a word of the Lord, just by his authority, that unclean spirit has departed from this woman's daughter. 30. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. That's a great miracle. Not only... Has the Lord answered this lady's prayer, this persistent South Phoenician woman, this persistent Greek Gentile woman? Not only has he answered a prayer, not only did she humble herself in order to have a prayer answered, but her daughter was healed, probably straight away. But go back to my earlier word of caution, that children can be possessed by devils. And maybe this woman, her mother, was into the occult, maybe the woman's husband was involved with some kind of sin, we may never know, but someone, somewhere, got involved with sin, and it affected this young girl's life. 31. And again, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee, through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf, and had an impediment in his speech, and they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spit, and touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed, and saith unto him, Ephratha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, 
and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. 34. Ephrathah, Aramaic, meaning be opened. Chapter 5. Tarathakumi, arise little girl. Decapolis, 31, that's where the maniac was healed. 33. He puts his fingers into the ears of this deaf man and spits and touches his tongue. Jesus never healed two people the same way. I've already said that. 34. He looks up to heaven and sighs, takes a deep breath, and says unto him, Ephrathah. That is, be opened. He speaks to the man who's deaf, who had an impediment in his speech to be healed. And 35. His ears were opened immediately, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. 36. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it, and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. It was practically impossible for these people to contain their excitement. And yet... The Lord Jesus Christ is still dealing with a hostile, unbelieving group of people all around him. Hence why he says to them, don't tell any man. But of course they couldn't keep their mouths shut. And off they go publishing, declaring, stating to everyone what has just occurred. This is a great miracle. And like I say one more time, no two miracles by the Lord Jesus Christ were ever done the same way. And no two days were ever the same for the Lord Jesus Christ. So Mark chapter 7 commenced with the Lord taking the Pharisees to task over the man-made tradition. And he completed his mantles, their tradition and scripture policy running side by side, which the Catholic Church is still very guilty of to the present. And he says, never mind what a man eats, it's what comes out of his heart, adulteries. 21. Fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. That's the problem. It's not what you eat, it's what comes out of your heart. And from then he moves on, wanting to have some downtime, perhaps. He wanted no man to know where he was, 24, but he couldn't be hid. And out of nowhere, this woman finds him. She falls down at his feet, this Gentile woman. And she begs him to heal her daughter of an unclean spirit. But Jesus doesn't do it straight away. He deliberately prolongs her desire to have her daughter healed. Because he wanted her to understand that he was going to the children of Israel first of all. Salvation is of the Jews. John chapter 4. Up until this point... In the Lord's ministry, he's dealing primarily with the Jews. God loves Israel with an everlasting love. And he says to her, let the children first be filled. Let me finish my work and then I will come to the Gentiles. I will turn to the Gentiles. And in John 10, he told us how he had sheep that were not yet of his fold in reference to the Gentiles. But she perseveres with him. She humbles herself. She says, yes, Lord, I know that the dogs are able to eat the children's crumbs. That really does underscore how humble she was and also how desperate she was. And he commends her for saying that, 29, for this saying, go thy way, the devil 
is gone out of thy daughter, the unclean spirits. I don't think Satan himself would have been interested in possessing this young girl. He's got much bigger fish to fry. But he says, for this saying, go thy way, the devil has gone out of thy daughter. And 30, when she was come to her house, she probably ran home. She found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. And no doubt salvation came to that house as a result of this great healing, this great exorcism. And 31 down to 37, he's traveling through the coasts of Decapolis, where they bring unto him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech. And as always, the Lord never failed anyone when it came to healing, to delivering them. And to respect the man's privacy, 33 takes him aside from the multitude and puts his fingers into his ears and spits and touches his tongue. A very unique way of healing this person. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith unto him, Ephratha, that is, be opened. And straightway, without any delay, his ears were opened. And the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. Beautiful. What a great miracle maker. What a great saviour we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But like I said last time, he says, don't go and broadcast what's just occurred. Because most of the people are under the judgment of God. They have eyes to see, but cannot see. They have ears to hear, but cannot hear. But his friends couldn't contain themselves, and off they go broadcasting to everyone what has just occurred. So 37 verses conclude Mark chapter 7, and next up, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. In those days, the multitude being very great, and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him, and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now been with me three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way. For diverse of them came from far. Just picture this for a moment, if you will. Moses is in the wilderness with the children of Israel. And for 40 years, he, through the Lord God of the Bible, took care of their every needs. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is in the wilderness. And there are multitudes all around him. At least 4,000 men. And he too is about to take care of the children of Israel. For... And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Go back to the 5,000 that we saw last time, and already they have forgotten the miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ did. It wasn't just 5,000 men, there were women and children present as well. But like I said last time, the retention span of the apostles on so many occasions was severely limited. And the same is true of us today. I forget some of the past prayers that God has answered for me. And I forget some of the great things that the Lord God has done in the Bible. So don't be too hard on the apostles. And yet, you have to pinch yourself sometimes and just wonder, why did they forget the miracles so quickly? 5. And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves, and gave thanks, and break, and gave to his disciples to set before them, and they just set them before the people. This is practically a rerun of the 5,000, and the apostles are acting as waiters again. This is a true picture of servitude. 7. And they had a few small fishes, and he blessed, and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat, and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets, 
And they that had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. Moses was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here, on two separate occasions, separated by two chapters, the Lord Jesus Christ has fed over 24,000 people. And yet it's incredible how quickly the apostles forgot the feeding of the 5,000 and all of the other miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Look at verse 10, please. And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Damanthua. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. Now we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 4 how the Jews are entitled to a sign, a supernatural sign. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ did miracles left, right and centre. And for the most part, the Jewish leaders still would not believe on him, which underscores the reality that you can do miracles today, and yet people, for the most part, are not necessarily going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We also know from today that we live by faith, not by sight. Miracles in the New Testament were done, first of all, to affirm that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah, and miracles were done in the New Testament to affirm that the apostles were valid messengers, prophets, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, because they were going to write the New Testament. And I would say this also, that this generation that he is referring to would be in reference to the unbelieving apostate Jews, because the common people heard him gladly, and thousands of everyday people were healed, were fed. But the religious elite sent from Jerusalem were under a perpetual curse, going right back to the Old Testament. 13. And he left them, and entering into a ship again, departed to the other side. If he wasn't walking for miles every day, he was on a boat or a ship, criss-crossing Israel. And that pictures a person who was always busy for the Lord God of the Bible. 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, Neither had they in the ship more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. Once again, they are thinking of literal food. Go back to John chapter 2, when the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking to the unbelieving Jews about his body being destroyed, and after three days resurrected. And the people thought he was referring to the physical temple. And he doesn't correct them, he just leaves them in ignorance. Go to John chapter 6 when he speaks to the unbelieving Jews about eating his body and drinking his blood. And they too thought he meant that in a literal sense. But he turns from them and he expounds the true meaning of that metaphor to his apostles. And here the apostles, his own people, are battling to understand the metaphorical language that the Lord Jesus Christ is using. Look at 17. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye? Because ye have no bread. Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have ye your heart yet hardened? It's a good question. He's asking them, Why don't you understand what I am saying to you? Are you too part of this group of unbelieving Israelites? Look at 18. Having eyes, see ye not. And having ears, hear ye not, and do ye not remember? He's almost categorizing 
his own apostles with the unbelieving Israelites. And that would have been a stinging indictment against them. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? That was in reference, of course, to the unbelieving Israelites, foretold back in the Old Testament. And he's saying to his people here, you really should understand what I am saying to you. At times, I think the Lord was appalled at their slow take-up. He was appalled at their inability to keep up with him. And yet at the same time, he understood that man is simply flesh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And yet not through with them, he says in verse 19, When I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, Twelve. One basket for each of the apostles to then take and feed to the five thousand. Twenty. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that you do not understand? Again, he's not quite through with them. He still angry with them. This is a righteous anger. He's saying, you people should know by now that I am the God-man. You people should know by now that I can do miracles whenever I choose to. And you people should know by now that I'm not going to leave thousands upon thousands starving and fainting along the way. As I've looked after you people, my 12 slash 70, I'm going to look after the believing multitudes, which have followed me from afar, because I am the good shepherd. But like I say, the apostles on so many occasions failed to keep up with him. 22, and he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. The previous verses have demonstrated, time after time, how the apostles were totally incapable of understanding the simplicity of Christ. They were spiritually blinded. And here the Lord is going to take a man who is suffering with physical blindness and heal him right under the nose of the apostles. And this was done, no doubt, to highlight his infuriation, his indignation that his own people, time after time, failed to grasp the enormity of the Lord's ministry. 23. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. Some people think this is a twofold healing. I think it's a two-stage healing. I think it was done, first of all, to highlight the apostles' physical blindness. They couldn't see or hear in a spiritual sense. And this man was highlighted. This man was pulled out of the crowd and healed to demonstrate the lack of faith and understanding of the apostles. 26. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. Why? Because they too are under the judgment of God. They too are part of the unbelieving remnant of Israelites. 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? So the question is put to all of the apostles. And this account is also cross-referenced back to Matthew chapter 16. But please remember that 
Peter has dictated his gospel, his recollection of his time with the Lord Jesus Christ to John Mark. So what you are about to read has come straight from the mouth of Peter, if you will. 28. And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth, and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And John's Gospel, he goes on to say, The Son of the living God. And in Matthew chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against them. So the question was put to all of the apostles, and Peter, speaking on behalf of all of the apostles, affirms, Thou art the Christ, you are the Messiah. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in Matthew 16, commends Peter, slash all of the apostles, for their faith in him. And he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, meaning upon this foundation, meaning upon your confession of faith, I will build my church, his universal church, which of course is the body of Christ. He's not making Peter the rock. Jesus Christ is a rock himself. But it's interesting how certain people thought that the Lord Jesus Christ was John the Baptist, like Herod or Elias, meaning Elijah, and others, or one of the prophets. And I believe it's Jeremiah. He's also suggested back in Matthew chapter 16, but for the most part, the people had little idea as to whom the Lord Jesus Christ truly was. And he was quite content for that. It says in John chapter 2, he knew what was in men and didn't need anyone to testify of him. Apart from John the Baptist, of course, he wasn't interested in people in general knowing who he was until he was crucified and resurrected from the dead. And that's why he says in verse 30, and he charged them that they should tell no man of him. He was on his own timetable. He wasn't in a rush to get to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And like I've said repeatedly, that's why he spent three and a half years on the earth, for the most part anyway, spending time with his own apostles, building them up for the ministry that awaited them. And also the people, no doubt, would have wanted to make him a king before he had died on the cross for the sins of the world. 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. How many people from the ancient world or even from our present generation could predict how they would die, let alone when they would die? I suggest nobody. Not one person living today, or last week, or last year, or the last decade, or the last century, has been able to predict how they would die, or even when they would die. But the Son of Man must suffer many things, the suffering Saviour, the Son of Joseph, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests, much like their fathers rejected God back in the Old Testament, and be killed like most of the prophets were, and after three days, rise again. Resurrection. And this wasn't the first time that he would have explained this to his apostles, and yet time after time, they couldn't receive it, and time after time, the word of God tells us how the Lord restrained them 
from understanding it. It's almost a paradox, but it goes back to the Lord's sovereignty and man's free will. The Lord calls all men to repent, but he knows the vast majority of men are not going to repent, but he still offers them repentance. The call still goes out for men to repent, even though he knows that people for the most part are going to reject him. He still offers them the chance of being saved nevertheless. Look at 32. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Could this be Pope Peter, the so-called first infallible Pope, rebuking his master? Peter was not infallible. Peter was greatly beloved by the Lord, and Peter certainly loved the Lord amongst the others with a great love. But Peter was flawed. And there's no infallibility here. Peter hasn't been given a special briefing concerning the Lord's soon-to-be death. Because the word of God tells you that he spoke that saying openly. He's told all of them, the twelve, and no doubt the seventy, what is about to occur. And yet Peter, behaving like probably most Jews would have behaved, took him and began to rebuke him. He tried to talk him out of going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world. Why? Because to the Jews, a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, it was foolishness. And also Peter probably hated the apostate Jewish hierarchy. He certainly would have had no time for the Romans, and in his mind for his beloved rabbi to be tortured to death by unsaved Jews and superstitious Gentiles was just too much for him. But that's why Jesus Christ came to earth in the first place, to die on the cross for the sins of the world. 33. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. In Matthew chapter 16, he's just commended Peter for his declaration that Jesus Christ is a son of God. And he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, upon your confession, I'm going to build my church on myself. And here he says to Peter, in the presence of all of the disciples, Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan was not in Peter. Satan was probably standing behind Peter. And the words that Peter said gave the appearance, if you will, of coming from the mouth of Satan. But you can't say that Satan spoke through Peter in a literal sense. And you certainly cannot say that Satan had possessed Peter. Some Christians believe that believers can be possessed by unclean spirits. I don't believe that. I've never believed that. But unclean spirits can certainly oppress Bible-believing Christians. But this is a very interesting scripture because, like I say, on the one hand, 29, Peter's affirmed that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen of God, the anointed. And from there, 31, the Lord explains to all of the apostles, going to 32, how he's going to die for the sins of the world. And yet Peter just couldn't take it. Peter had a breakdown, if you will. Hence why he says, you won't go to the cross, Lord. And Jesus Christ turns him about in the presence of all of the disciples, because if you sin in public, you should be rebuked in public. And he says to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. You're speaking on behalf of men, he's saying, not God. And he's also saying, you don't understand what I've just explained to you, and you are speaking 
like an unsaved man or woman would speak. That's a very quick rebuke. That's a very quick fall from grace. And that's why the Lord spent another year with the 12 apostles to build them up time after time because they would fall so quickly they would forget so quickly past lessons learnt. 34 and when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also he said unto them whosoever will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me in other words if you are going to follow me you should be prepared to die for me i'm going to the cross 31 32 so you too should be prepared to go to the cross as well. You should be prepared to die for your faith in me. It may not happen for all of you, but it could happen to some of you. So be prepared for this. 35. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Some people say, well, I'm not going to follow the Lord. It's too risky. It's going to cost me something. I'm going to sit back and do my own thing. And he says, fine, you may save your life now, but you'll lose it at the great white throne judgment. To follow me is going to cost you something. You either pay for it now as a Bible-believing Christian, or you pay for your life. You pay for your sins at the great white throne judgment. You might save your life now, but you lose your soul at the great white throne judgment. 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? and lose his own soul. Billionaires, millionaires, wealthy people, successful people, for the most part, have gained the world. Pop stars, movie stars, actors. They win Oscars, they win platinum, best-selling records, gold discs. They become successful authors. They have their own TV shows, their own ministries, their own radio stations. They've gained the whole world, but when they die, they go six feet into the ground. They've gained the whole world, and yet they've lost their soul. Their soul is eternal because God is eternal. This life is temporary, but the next life is eternal. 37. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Some people say they made a pact with the devil. Some people say they've given up everything and everyone in order to be successful. But the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. Money per se is not evil, but the love of money is evil. And yet 37, one more time, what shall a man or woman give in exchange for a soul? Absolutely everything. Most people that have lived or are ever going to live will lose their soul at the great white throne judgment and go into hell forever. Because men and women loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. To be ashamed of him means that you died not believing in him. Peter fell temporarily through shame, but did not lose his salvation and timothy was ashamed of the lord but he too did not lose his salvation this is primarily in reference to people not believing on the lord being ashamed of him being embarrassed being offended by him to such a state that they won't believe on him and that's why he says when the son of man shall arrive in the power or glory of his father's kingdom with the holy angels 
he too will be ashamed of unbelieving individuals. But I'll say this also, it is possible that this could be in reference to Bible-believing Christians who have fallen from grace, are now carnal, and have simply fallen away altogether. And they will be greatly chastised at the judgment seat of Christ. And I believe it's in Luke chapter 12, where there's a strong possibility of such people being publicly whipped by the Lord Jesus Christ before he tells them that they have forfeited their right or their place in the millennial kingdom of God. So 38, one more time. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Yes, that could be in reference to also the unbelieving Israelites that were present around 32 AD. But I'm still going to retain my view that this could ultimately be in reference to, say, people falling away from grace. And he says that he too will be ashamed of such people when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's why you need to protect your testimony. That's why you need to walk in the Spirit each and every day. That's why you need to read the Word of God each and every day and pray until you pray each and every day. So chapter 8 started with the Lord feeding 4,000 people and within just three or four verses, the disciples had forgotten how he had fed the 5,000 in chapter 6. Their attention span was so limited and yet, although he was angry with them, he loved them, of course, and he was able to use miracles right under their noses time after time to reaffirm his deity, to reaffirm his supernatural protection and ability to do whatever he needed to do whenever he needed to do it. And he tells us also from the word of God how he would never leave us nor forsake us. But as always, the Pharisees are never far off seeking signs from heaven. And he says, forget it. No more signs are going to come for you people. And that's why towards the end of his ministry, he departed further and further outside of Jerusalem, went into the towns and cities and villages where the common people heard him gladly. And due to the problem of the disciples being spiritually indifferent to some of his miracles, he takes a blind man, 22, going down to 26, and gives him sight right under their nose. He does it deliberately to demonstrate his sovereignty, and he does it also to demonstrate his love for this blind man. 27, going down to 33, you get an abridged account of the Lord asking all of his apostles, whom do men say that I am? And Peter, as the oldest, speaks up and says, thou art the Christ. Elsewhere he says, the son of the living God. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, thou art Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock, i.e. me, I will build my church, the eternal body of Christ. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Which means that although apostasy has always been a problem, apostasy in general will never completely overtake or engulf the true body of Christ. There's always going to be a small remnant of faithful Bible-believing Christians right up until the second coming of Christ. And yet on that point in verse 30 he says, Don't tell any man of this until I have been resurrected from the dead. Bit by bit, step by step, He's building them up. And also this message is given exclusively to the 12 slash the 70. No parables here. It was impossible to misunderstand what he was telling them. 
And yet by 32 and 33, Peter has just flipped. Peter is infuriated by the fact that his beloved Messiah is going to have to die such an horrendous death. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Speaking to the Spirit, probably behind Peter, not in Peter. For thou savourest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And that shows you how quickly a person can fall from grace. One minute, the Lord has commended you. The next minute, you have fallen from grace. And that also pictures the two natures in the believer. Because I believe that the apostles were saved before the Lord called them. Excluding perhaps Matthew and perhaps Simon the Zealot. But the rest of the apostles, I believe, were probably saved before the Lord called them for service, not salvation. And yet because of Peter's failure to grasp the enormity of the Lord's soon-to-be death, the necessity of the Lord's soon-to-be death, 34 going down to 38, he says, Whoever follows me, Jew or Gentile, here or after I die, should be prepared to pick up his cross daily and follow me. And on top of that, to deny himself, meaning I am going to be your Lord and you follow me to the end of the earth if necessary. Paul told us in Romans chapter 12 how we are to present our bodies as a daily sacrifice unto the Lord. We sacrifice our bodies in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense, on a daily basis. We beat our bodies in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense, on a daily basis. We keep the old man down and we bring all ungodly thoughts and deeds to the Lord. We submit to him, not to ourselves. And 35 going down to 38 if you seek to save your life by not believing on me, you'll lose it at the great white throne judgment. But if you are prepared to lose it by following me, you will receive it at the judgment seat of Christ. It's a paradox, of course, and yet it's a very simplistic truth. To follow him could mean death in a physical sense, which would result in eternal life upon death. 36 going down to 37. What should it profit a man or woman if he or she should gain the whole world, and yet lose his or her soul. Nothing whatsoever, of course. You may live 60, 70, 80 or 90 years on this life, but when you die, you're dead forever. Your soul is eternal because God is eternal. And 37, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And I tell you something, people from Hollywood, people from the world of entertainment or politics or sports or entertainment have given everything up to be successful and yet 10 out of 10 people die and unless you're born again you're lost and when you die you'll go to hell forever because you turn from him you are ashamed of him 38 and of his words found in the word of God and he condemns you and those living during his own generation and he calls them an adulterous and sinful generation and he says when he comes in his father's kingdom he's going to be ashamed of you that's going to be horrendous. So 38 verses from Mark chapter 8. Please take heed to what I've said today. And if you're not saved, just turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I believe on thee. I believe thou died for my sins. And I'm trusting in thee to save me totally. And I'm going to turn from myself to you now and receive you as my Saviour and Lord. And if you come to him on his terms, if you're sincere... If you are honest with yourself, if you're truly humbled, and if you truly have seen the enormity of your sin, the Bible says he will receive you to the uttermost. Next up, 
Mark chapter 9.